0: hello everybody welcome to another comic source comic boom collaboration these this is your dc spotlight for the week of january 25th 2022 we're back we're Woo. back uh welcome back rocky uh sorry for all the the familial issues glad to hear your daughter's doing okay uh for anybody that that has just been listening to the audio versions rocky did put out his own dc spotlight last week in three parts like throughout the week when he could grab time here or there so uh if you're curious if you if you only listen to the audio version and you're curious on his thoughts because i was curious i went and watched rocky's three part because i talked about it last time when uh, on the on the audio only version about there were so many important books last week i was like man i really want to know like what does rocky think about this or that or whatever so again if you if you didn't if you guys didn't check it out because you're audio only i encourage you head over to youtube go to rocky's channel they're their bite size because he broke it down into three. Uh, but yeah, last week they had some, there were some pretty important books last week. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, I, I, I should also, I should also, real quick, uh, mention that speaking of, of important books and, and kind of the state of DC, Rocky and I did do a, kind of a comic talk on, on DC comics in, uh, in general uh, yesterday. So that's available uh, on the feeds as well. If you want to hear our, our thoughts on, Current sales and uh, and that that sort of thing. So,
1: yeah, <laughs> is that your dog?
0: <laughs> yeah, my wife just got home and uh, yeah, making his presence making his presence known.
1: Yeah, well, I I, I agree. I I am still. Catching up on your views of some of the other, uh, of, of your views from the comics from last week. And uh, my daughter's healed up uh, or getting there. She's, got, she's a diabetic now, so we're learning how to use the needles and everything. So we're, my wife and I are getting primed up on that. And, uh, you know, she seems to be, she's still in the hospital, but she'll only a couple more days. And so I'm finding enough time here. You're, you're nice enough to cater to my schedule a little bit. And uh, we'll get going here because we've got, we got 18 books to cover, man. It's going to be a marathon tonight.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, so
0: uh, yeah, so uh, I guess uh, without further ado, yeah, without further ado, we'll we'll kick it off with Deathstroke Incorporated Number Five, from writer uh, Joshua Williamson. Uh, Paolo Pantalina is the artist. Colors are by Hi-Fi. Steve Wands does the letters. You know, we saw last time that uh, Black Canary and Deathstroke had sort of uh, confronted Trust, the the new Libra. And then after a pitched battle got thrown into this dimension, apparently this place where Prometheus used to go and hide with this sort of shifting, sort of haunted house. Um, and it, it sort of brings everything to a head with what trust actually is. Trust, it turns out, is just a front for the the secret society of supervillains uh, who are trying to... It, it, it's kind of interesting actually what Williamson is is doing here. They're not being their old sort of mustache twirling self and trying to take over the world. They're, they see themselves as the good guys, like trying to, to make the world a better place, but really they're doing it for very selfish reasons. So in my mind, they're still, they're still not, um, you know, they don't have the best interest of, of everybody uh, at heart and Slade kind of, you know, once he realizes what's going on, he says, well, if, If there's going to be a leader of supervillains, a king of supervillains, it's going to be me. And he kicks out the calculator. He kicks out Libra and sits on the throne. Um, I sort of have my doubts this is what he's, you know, he's actually after. Because it does seem like DC is definitely trying to make Deathstroke more of an anti-hero than than an out-and-out villain these days. Um, But I I don't know. the, The biggest problem that I'm having with this Deathstroke Incorporated book right now, first of all... Still don't know why, still don't understand why it's called Deathstroke Incorporated. It just seems to be a Deathstroke book in my mind. But the other thing is that because I uh, interviewed Christopher Priest recently, and if you haven't had a chance to check out that episode, go check it out. It's, it's a really fun talk with Christopher who's been, this is now his sixth decade in comics. He's been working in, in comics at the Big Two since 1978. Wow. Um, but I because I was interviewing him, I revisited. I didn't reread the entire thing because I'd read it before, but I revisited his Deathstroke run, and some of the issues I did read, uh, read some of them I just skimmed, but it reminded me of of how much complexity and nuance he brought to the character, and it's it's in my in for me it's the best thing that Christopher Priest has ever done. So when we get to this version of Deathstroke that Williamson's giving us, it is much more of the mustache twirling version of the character, you know, as opposed to the the secret society which he's adding complexity to, he's taking complexity away from from Slade. Um, and it, I don't know. It's just not my, it's not my favorite. The other thing that I'll mention about it um, is the art. Pantalina's art is usually a lot softer than this. Like I always go back to the work he did at, um, at Aspen comics yeah. on, uh, God, what was the name of that series? The one that he did with, uh, Red Star? with J- No, he did a, he did uh, a series with JT Krull. It was about a djinn, a like a genie, and I can't, I can't remember. I'll remember what it is in a second. But uh, this female genie, and, and it was all soft curves and, and beautiful bright colors, and it was just gorgeous art. I and now with this, it's so angular and he's severe. Trying and to, and I think he's way. trying to copy
1: Howard Porter. I, I, that's what I thought. It, I thought it, he was
0: – Yeah. It feels like it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't really particularly care for um, – for the art in this one. So anyway, what were your thoughts on this one, Rocky? Well, uh, I was, uh,
1: I think Williamson has got his characterizations all wonky here uh, because uh, on the one hand uh, I'm getting the impression that, you know, first of all, it's confirmed that Justine Ballantyne is in fact the twin sister of Justin Ballantyne, who is the original Libra. Now she is now apparently her brother is dead. She's taking over and she wants to bring balance to the universe. You would think. And yet she's working with a society of supervillains and the calculator is all about money. So it's not really about balance. I guess calculators calculators more about getting greedy and so that's if you're greedy by definition you're not balancing the books. So you're not really leveling the playing field. So there's all kinds of hypocrisy and nonsense going on here in the logic of these so-called intelligent supervillains. They even put down the legion of doom. They put down the legion of doom and insult the legion of doom. Uh, of Lex Luthor, Grodd, Cheetah, Black Manta, Joker, and Sinestro is always looking after their own self-interest. And yet, here they are, and they're just concerned about money. And the calculator jokes that he knows it's about money because he knows numbers, and he he looked at the books. And, and then Deathstroke, upon hearing this, upon hearing that all these increasing number of supervillains are joining the society... You know because it's not, it's not a trust council because that's what Justine Ballantyne originally referred to it as is it's the trust council of this new organization called Trust, bringing balance to the No, no, the, the trust council is really the secret society. Well, Deathstroke wants to take it over. And what happens here is, you know you mentioned that he he I mean, you mentioned that he pushed uh, Justine Valentine and Calculator aside. No, he killed them. He blew calculator's head off. He put a bullet through calculator's head. Now I don't know how that's going to work here because as we're going to see when we review Flash Seven Seventy Eight, the Calculator is behind a lot of the machinations going on in the Flash right now, as he's responsible for the kidnapping of Jay, uh, Jay and I, Irie West, uh, along with Mammoth and Shimmer. So, uh, the, the the fact the Calculator is shot in the head here, and is, you know I don't know how he's going to survive that. I know it's comics, but still. And then he seems to shoot point blank and kills Justine Ballantyne. I mean, this is I mean all of a sudden. Uh, he 's taking Libra off the playing field who is a was a significant player or at least for a while in final crisis her brother was and and then and then even even uh Dina Lance Black Canary seems to be surprisingly i mean she she 's shocked at first, but you know again slade i 'm not sure what the play is here so so Slade wants to be in charge of all the supervillains and all the of the secret society and and to what end i don't i don 't really get this here and There's a number of things that don't really add up. It seems kind of really kind of like foolish. And like you said, it's kind of mustache twirling here and a surprisingly overly simplistic approach to villains that uh, I thought I maybe deserve a little bit more sophistication and an adult take. So I didn't like this. I I just plain didn't like it. I I don't like, uh, I thought this is dumbing everything down. I thought this was building to something, but I'm not getting that impression anymore. Uh, Especially since we know that Black Canary is going to be taken off the playing field with the death of Justice League coming up. It's like, well, whatever. And I'm wondering now, is the secret society going to to become Deathstroke Incorporated? To answer your question, Jace, that everyone's asking, why is it called Deathstroke Incorporated, which has never been answered? Maybe he's going to change the name to Deathstroke Incorporated. Because looking at the, the number of villains that are around this table, none of them have got the shoot spot that Deathstroke does. Monocle, Phobia, Dr. Moon, Dr. Destiny, Deadline, Prometheus, Tattooed Man, Shrapnel, Body Doubles, Count Vertigo. None of those people hold a candle to to Deathstroke. And so I can see him leading these group of idiots uh, quite handily. But uh, beyond that, I think it's interesting. But at the same time, it's a little bit disappointing. Uh, And the art, I'm not a fan of Howard Porter's art at the best of times to be brutally honest, but uh, in defense of uh Paolo Pantalina, he does seem to be trying to copy Howard Porter as a tribute, because I know that I'm in the minority on that. A lot of people love Howard Porter's art. So I think it does a serviceable job imitating Howard Porter.
0: Yeah, it definitely does look like Howard Porter. Like if I didn't know better, I would assume it was Howard Porter uh, that, that title from Aspen's called journey. I can't believe I, I forgot that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you um, in that it, it it feels a little bit dumbed down and I don't know. It just feels like not taking advantage because there, there was some, before we found out trust was actually the secret society of supervillains. I was sort of interested in trust. Uh, but now that I find out it's just the secret society of supervillains, my interest has has dissipated quickly. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, kind of interesting. The only thing that I'll say about what might be going on in terms of, of, uh, of Deathstroke, like taking these guys off the field, killing them. We do know, and we saw earlier in the issue that this house was, I, I don't want to say like causing them to hallucinate, but it was showing them things that weren't actually happening. So you wonder if maybe Deathstroke's somehow able to to take that over. Somehow he's programmed the holodeck to borrow terminology from another property. Yeah, maybe it's all and, a hallucination or something. Yeah, exactly. Maybe like, it didn't really go down. Uh, maybe point. he's pulling the, yeah pulling the wool over the other villain's eyes so he can use them to to establish deathstroke incorporated like you said i guess we'll see uh all right let's move on to the next book which uh oh, this one was so good uh dc versus vampires number four written by james tyne and the fourth and matthew rosenberg art color and main cover by otto schmidt lettered by tom napolitano uh and i if you listen to the the dc talk dc comic talk we did yesterday i mentioned this as soon as I finished reading this book, I immediately went to see if we had the next issue in our press previews, which we didn't. But that's how much I wanted the next issue. So th- this is a real highlight this week. Uh, what did you think, Rocky? I,
1: I, I like this. Uh, this is, uh, you know, Matthew, uh, James Tannian and Matthew Rosenberg, uh, they've just done a stellar job creating a, a high tension, high impactful sort of adventure here that seems to be moving fast paced. Uh, Otto Schmidt on the Arts done a really good job here. We know that the vampires of the DC Universe, Mary Queen of Scots or Mary Queen of the Vampires has been killed. And apparently somebody has become the general or the king of the vampires now. Are we assuming it's a king? There's hints here that maybe it's the Joker, God forbid, who's taken over and now become king of the vampires. We're not really sure. But what Batman has sort of figured out, along with Green Arrow, who had, they end up meeting in the Batcave, is that, you know, there's there, there's, there's a hierarchy to the vampires that they got to figure out what's going on. In the meantime, the issue starts off with Zatanna, who we know to be a vampire from previous issues, confronts John Constantine. And in typical John Constantine fashion, John Constantine, he, he's aware, he's already aware that, that uh, Zatanna is in fact taken over, is, is in fact a vampire, but he doesn't want to kill her because he probably because he loves her, although he doesn't really say that. But he's, you know, she asks him, well, why don't you kill me if you know I'm a vampire? And he's like, well, you're you're already dead, Lassie. You know what I mean? Like, what's there to kill? I mean, you're already dead. And so he continues to talk with her until later he's confronted by, uh, he's confronted by Dr. Fate, who ends up killing Zatanna anyway. But in the meantime, Batman's in his Batcave. And what I love about what uh, Ro- Rose, writers Rosenberg and Tinian do here is uh, I love the code word here that Batman has. He's talking to Alfred, and and he, he realizes he's been broken into, and he says, ah, Alfred, I just remembered it might rain. And that's code word for the cave's been broken into and uh, because it doesn't rain in a bat cave unless it's, uh, unless it's been uh, uh, broken into. And, of course, Green Arrow was broken into the bat cave. He suspects he's done his own uh, investigations uh, because he had some... Uh, green, all, Oliver Queen had some confrontations with some villains uh, in previous issues and he thinks Batman might be compromised. The trail lead, led to Gotham and it's in, in, a, in a great scene uh, Green, Arrow, uh, Green Arrow and Batman end up getting into a fight with each other uh, where they discover uh, much by accident because Green Arrow tries to Take out Batman with some holy water at the end of a arrow, and Batman realizes, and Green Arrow both realize that they're both mistaken and thinking each other is a vampire, which is really good because right away they get on track and they know they're on each other's side. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Barbara, Barbara Gordon, Batgirl, and Nightwing are sort of they she's piecing together the married queen of uh, queen of vampires. Having the apparently there was a meeting in Gotham. They don't know what happened, but presumably one can assume that. That was when Mary, Queen of the Vampires, was taken off the playing field. And then a new King of Vampires took over. And, uh, you know, again, we, we we get a lot of movement here. Dr. Fate confronts John Constantine. He takes out Zatanna. Because, you know, of course, the, the fate of the world is at stake here. And, uh, by the way, the exact words. The very fate of the world is at stake. Get it? Stake? Yeah. Anyways, yep. I, I'm, that's so bad I had to say it. But in any event... Um, yeah, I I like this. Uh, it ends with uh, you know it ends with ultimately the Justice League led by Wonder Woman and Hal Jordan confronting Batman and Oliver Queen. Batman's already tells Oliver that you know it's Hal's the guy, Hal's the mole, Hal's the leak. He killed Barry, and again the, the stakes are really being raised here. Uh, Cassandra Kane and Jason Todd they t- they try to take out Gorilla Grodd at, at one point. Again we got we got action have. Uh, taking place on multiple fronts. It's Batgirl Cassandra Kane that discovers, uh, discovers a card with the Joker's face on a, a Joker playing card with uh, some blood on it, implying perhaps that maybe the Joker is the King of the Vampires. Part of me thinks that's misdirection. I, I would think by now, James Tinian, at the very least, with Rosenberg, is maybe sick of the Joker. Both Rosenberg, Rosenberg has his uh, has his uh, Joker series that he's doing, uh, the Puzzle Box, and Tinian is doing his... he he just he's wrapping up his Joker War until issue fourteen. So I like to think they're going to choose a bigger baddie in this particular series, other than the Joker. It seems a little bit sort of predictable. So I, I suspect that's misdirection, but. I enjoyed this. I thought the art was great. It was kinetic. The action was fun. It feels like this is a story that is moving. It has momentum and there are stakes. (laughs) There's that word again. And I I like the fact that these characters can die and this is out of continuity. So what do you think?
0: Yeah, I I loved it. Like, you know, obviously I was immediately looking for the next issue. Uh, I thought the the fight between Batman and Green Arrow was fun. Although, you know, if I'm nitpicking, I'm like, eh, what? You know, Batman's been figuring things out. Green Arrow uh, obviously was a little ahead of the curve even further than Batman. But they kind of know. But then at the same time, because of what's going on with the vampires having been kind of behind the scenes, pulling strings for so many years, they're probably going to second guess everything. So uh, I appreciated that. I really love the interplay between Nightwing and uh, and Batgirl or, or Dick and Barbara. You know, so many people have, have uh, put them together and want to see them, you know as kind of the, the Peter Parker and Mary Jane of the, of the DC universe. So I, I appreciated that. Uh, again, this might be the only time that DC editorials to allow that to actually go down the path of, you know, uh, getting married or something like that would be in a an out of continuity book like this. Um, I really enjoyed seeing Dr. Fate cut loose on Zatanna. I loved John Constantine be like, yeah, I know the vampires are making a move like, so what? Like a typical Constantine, you know, like, no, don't, uh, don't tell me, you know, the war is going on. And he he knew Zatanna was a, a vampire, didn't want her killed. Like he's always on his own side. You know, he's always has his own thing. Doesn't it, it's he's such an interesting character. And, and I love that despite the fact so many things have changed, maybe the biggest one being Hal Jordan, that Constantine's characterization is one thing that's a, that's a constant almost uh, no matter what version or what universe you're in. So uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and then the end, yeah, the, the confrontation where the rest of the Justice League show up. Um, and I think the one, the thing that has me most curious, I, I think that Tynan and Rosenberg picked the perfect person to be the mole inside the Justice League. Um, because I'm not sure, like, can, if Superman gets bit by a vampire, I mean, can they even bite him? Uh, wouldn't they have to expose him to kryptonite or something to weaken his skin enough to like actually bite him and then could wouldn't his like super immune system fight off the infection. So, you know, when you think about like the next most powerful person, maybe you can make an argument for Martian Manhunter, John Jones, but again, he's a Martian. Would he be, you know, a shapeshifter? So would he be, uh, you know, possibly could be infected or not. So really Hal Jordan is, is the logical choice. So, so powerful. So, so what happens here? It's like Hal and, and, Diana have pulled the wool over the other guy's eyes and convinced him that Batman's actually the the mole, um, but how much? And again, this is a different version, different multiverse or whatever of these characters. How much is the friendship of of Batman and and Clark going to play in here? Batman and Superman, Bruce and Clark, right? Yeah. Like, will Batman be able to just appeal to Clark's better? Like, hey, hey, look at like look at my body. Like, you can see that I'm still alive. Like, why wouldn't Clark use his X-ray vision? like automatically on wonder woman and green lantern when they're telling him that is he really that trusting because I guarantee in that situation, if Batman had the opportunity, someone comes to Batman and says, Hey, Superman's the mole or green arrows, the mole or whoever Batman would, he never trust anybody. Yeah. he's gonna you know like trust but verify right yeah well not mean, I, look
1: at look at that scene look at the way they they uh Auto, how, the way Otto schmidt drew this scene he draws it so that green lantern and wonder woman are behind mash yeah. and manhunter superman cyborg and Hawkgirl, almost as if they're they're there to be for safety in case batman convinces them that you know what i mean like it it, it, it looks very cleverly done you can almost tell who the who the you know, the way that's artistically rendered. I think it's very clever that Wonder Woman and Green Lantern are sort of like hiding, you know, sort of like behind everyone, waiting, uh, no matter what happens, they're prepared.
0: Yeah, prepared to run, basically, to take yeah. off. Because if Batman can just convince Superman, hey, just turn around and take use your X-ray vision or telescopic vision or whatever it is that he needs to see, there's got to be something different in the physiology of, of Hal Jordan uh, that Superman would be able to to spot. So, yeah, really, really curious to see what happens in this battle, you know, because theoretically speaking, and I, you know, he's done it in the past. Batman has, you know, all these different ways, again, because of his paranoia and the fact he doesn't trust anybody, Batman has a way to take down every member of the the justice league, but like setting that aside, because he wasn't necessarily prepared for this to go down and maybe he has a way to take them all down separately, but they're all together. So just on paper, you think, okay, what chance do green arrow and Batman who have no superpowers, what chance do they really have against, Martian Manhunter, Superman, Cyborg, again, Hawkgirl, not to mention a vampiric Wonder Woman and Hal Jordan. <laughs> like on paper, it's a slaughter. So, uh, how they're going to get out of it, uh, I'm very curious to see. So, uh, all right, let's move on to the next book. It's Aquaman, Green Arrow, Deep Target Number Four from writer Brandon Thomas. Ronan Clique is the artist, Ulysses Ariola on colors, Josh Reed on letters. Uh, this one's interesting. We saw last time. That uh, that Aquaman and Green Arrow, Aquaman being uh, Oliver Queen and Green Arrow being Arthur Curry, <laughs> because something's happened to the timeline, and their lives basically have been switched. They've they've been Freaky Friday. They were captured by Scorpio and taken to their base. Tried to escape and found out it's on the moon, so it's not they can't just run outside and escape. So once they realize that, they actually actually have to fight their way back inside the. Uh, kind of the, the, uh, the installation here and, and look for a rocket or some way to get home. In the meantime, uh, the leader of Scorpio has decided that he's going to enact something called tabula rasa, which means clean slate in Latin. Um, and his underlings are, are, are sort of hesitant, like, are you, are you sure we should do this? And he's like, yes, we've worked too hard. This is the Justice League. You know, we can't fail. They will escape. They'll bring their friends here. It'll be over. All the work we've done will be uh, undone. We have to go back before we were discovered and sh- and change time again. Um, and it's interesting. One of the guys goes, "Okay, we'll do it." I sure hope I remember you. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Wait, what? What exactly is, is going on here? So, Green Lantern and Green Arrow do manage, or uh, uh, Alchemy and Green Arrow do manage to escape. But once they get down to earth, instead of just that uh, one general being like a hybrid human dinosaur, it's every, it's everybody it's 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 everybody everybody that's walking around. It's like a scene out of that ABC show from the 90s, dinosaurs. like everybody's like this and and Aquaman and Greenair are looking at each other going like what the hell's going on? Um, and they get spotted by some police officers that are you know half dinosaur, half human they start being shot at and who shows up to defend them. But that, that general saying, get behind me, go, go. And he's got this bow and arrow and like, yeah, n- absolutely no clue what's going on in this book. Um, it's been a wild ride and it's not over yet apparently. Cause I, I really don't have any idea. This is issue four of seven and like all along, we've thought that Scorpio are the bad guys, but now I'm I'm like, so is that not the case is this tabula did the tabula rasa cause everybody to turn into half dinosaur half human or is that what they're trying to go back and fix like i i yeah i don't know man this is crazy obviously it's sort of out of continuity as well although i guess it doesn't have to be out of continuity if you're talking about going back and changing time and and events and whatnot um but yeah, I'm just not sure what's going on. Uh, and the art has been solid throughout. Ronan Clique, very classically super heroic in terms of bright colors and and um, a lot of dynamic action. And uh, the, the page layouts are are pretty standard. That that's the one area where I feel like he can uh, he can improve. But there's a lot of panel breaks and and whatnot. And overall, I think it's a pretty strong comic. What were your thoughts?
1: I, I, this frustrated me because I. Uh, I guess well like we're four issues in here and, and uh we're just treading we're just treading wheels. This reminded me of issue two where uh, where nothing happened in issue two except one glorified fight scene on an airplane, uh, which allowed Ronan Cliquette, again to show off his artistic skills. And same with this this entire issue was just uh, both characters, Arthur and Arthur Curry and Oliver Queen, whose identities are mixed up with each other, they're escaping the moon base. So you know, what in issue two we had a long glorified fight scene on an airplane. Now we have a long glorified escape scene on, on in issue four from the moon base, which again, uh I, I guess I wanted a I want a little bit more storytelling uh and I don't mind action, but this isn't action that's moving the story, uh as as fast as I would like. Uh, but but you know, maybe that's just me being impatient. There's no question that uh, uh Ronan clickcuts art is fantastic, uh, Ulysses Ariola on the colors very very good uh, but very little on the story i don't know anything about this scorpio now it's hinted in the storyline here that this scorpio character or this scorpio organization i thought i think i thought it was the scorpio organization it's apparently they they they're in charge of shaping and controlling time and that's really odd this is to my knowledge this is the the a brand new organization in the d c universe you know it's funny how the d c universe at one point had too many organizations that uh, we wanted to eliminate them all thanks to Leviathan uh who Mark Shaw anyways uh you know now all of a sudden we have another organization uh this this Dino man whatever his name is controlling this Scorpio and uh it's, he, th- there's hints in this story that apparently they've done some good in the past, controlling and shaping time. But uh, I'll be honest, I, I don't like, I don't like the plot line. I don't like it. I don't like the idea that we we already have hyper time. We already have a multiverse. I don't like an, I don't like the idea of an organization that, that manipulates time in the DC universe. I don't like the idea. Uh, so and I, I'm not a, so I, I don't like the idea. I'm not a big fan of the characters. This is silly. This is not a great way, I think, to prop up two characters, you know, Oliver Queen and and Arthur Curry. Like, I just, I don't understand why this comic book exists when 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 there are so many other options <laughs> that we could have other than for this. This is an outlier to me. But but don't get me wrong. I mean, sure, I guess it's a lot of fun. But you know, it's about our comments earlier. But we have, you know, of all we have a almost a glut of DC comic books in in many ways, and and then we get something like this. This is a very very curious choice. I would have much have preferred Brandon Thomas's writing skills, scripting a different character, maybe even a different kind of story. Uh, especially with the benefit of Ronan cliquet's art, uh, art. But uh, in any event, it, it's all right. It's all right. But I don't, I don't know what larger narrative this or point this is really going to serve at the by the time we get to the end of all this, the timeline's going to be restored, and then, and then what? It just kind of seems blasé. This Scorpio yeah. organization seems very, very, you know, like like blah. I I don't know. I just, I, I'm not. Excited. Yeah. I mean, I can't argue with that.
0: If, if at the end of the day, everything is restored then, and, and the, you know, the freaky Friday stuff is, is reversed. Then what was the point of the story? Like I, I, yeah. And I do agree. And I, I think I specifically mentioned this book when I talked about so many DC titles coming out right now and, and this doesn't tie into anything. There's no reason this needs to be coming out right now. So yeah. But that being said, I do think it's fun. So anyway, Let's move on. Uh, next book, pretty important one in terms of, uh, it's a legacy Batman Catwoman special. Number one, this was supposed to come out obviously a long, long time ago, because a lot of the art is done by John Paul Leon, who tragically passed away from cancer uh, late last year. Um, Tom King's the writer This ties in with his uh, Batman Catwoman series. That's been going on for a long time now that has also suffered from a lot of delays and lost a lot of its agency because of that. But, um, John Paul didn't. Leon didn't get to finish it before he passed away, so he does a lot of the art in the book. But then it's finished by some of the people that are are closest to him. So, John Paul Leon does. uh, It's written by Tom King. John Paul Leon does the art on pages one through thirteen, and then the breakdowns on fourteen through twenty. So he he did the complete art for the first half of the book, and then the finished art for fourteen through twenty is done by Bernard Chang with Sean Crystal, and then. The remaining part of the story, pages 21 through 38, were done by Mitch Garretts. The colors uh, for 1 through 20 that Leone did are by Dave Stewart. Mitch Garretts, as he always does, colors, or often does, colors his own work. Clayton Cowell does the letters. Uh, There are a couple of variant covers, one by Bill Kosinkevich and one by Lee Weeks. Uh, John Paul Leone does the main cover, and there's a series of pinups, and some of the pinups even have little essays from some of the other creators who knew John Paul, so uh, the pin-ups are by Lee Bermejo. There's one by Dennis Cowan with colors by Chris Sotomayor. Becky Clunin, Klaus Jansen, and Dave Stewart do another pin-up. Rick Leonardi, Dave Stewart, and Chris Batista do another. Uh, Danny and Tamra Bonvillan, Abraham uh, Mustafa, Clay Clayman and Seth Sethman, Vanessa Del Rey, Dave Johnson, Joelle Jones, Sean Martinborough along with Chris Sotomayor, Carrie Randolph and Amelia Lopez, Tula Lute, Dave Gibbons, Walter Simonson and Laura Martin, and finally, John Bogdanov and Cian Mandrake. So this, this is a, a, a good tribute to John Paul Leone um, in a couple of ways. So for the first part of the story, this is John Paul Leone at his, at his best, with some of the best art I've ever seen him do. Um, and to hear other people talk about John Paul Leone, other artists, he really is an artist's artist. There's actually a school you can go to to actually learn how to do comics, you know, go to the Kubert school as opposed to going to like SCAD, you know, Savannah College of Art and Design or, or other sort of sorts of things uh, where you learn graphic design or you learn graphic art and then you translate to, that to comics. John Paul Leone's art style is, I, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Chiriosco, which basically means the balance between light and dark, between blacks and whites, right? And, I don't always see the brilliance in John Paul Leone's art because I'm not an artist and I don't necessarily understand it. But what I do understand is the way his art makes me feel and the tone of the story that his art evokes. And he's always fantastic in that way. And then on top of that, he's brilliant at actually telling a story with what he chooses to put in the panels and how his transitions go and, and whatnot. So, um, it's fantastic to get his art in this story, which is basically a Selena Kyle story through the years so to speak. We check in on Selena Kyle on Christmas Day year after year after year after year, year after as her life moves and it, it's we don't see every year but we get these snapshots of where she is at her life in particular time and what this bat man Catwoman special is doing is it's adding a lot of context in terms of who Selina Kyle is at the the end of her life who Selina kind of Kyle is in that you know the the story that takes place furthest along in the in the Batman Catwoman series where she does choose to kill the Joker it, this is adding so much emotional context and it adds a lot of character moments for Selina and Selina and Bruce and Selina and Bruce and their their kid I I don't recall what they name is it is do they call her helena is it helena here i think so like, yes yeah, typical her helena. yeah
1: i believe that's the case i don't know
0: if i'm just kind of flipping through trying to see if that, uh, that's what the color but helena. but again there there are moments between uh the three of them that i think work really really well so i i just think this is brilliant It it's 86 pages which is 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 quite a bit but um the actual story, I think, is only like forty pages or so. Yeah. And then what we get is some uh the layouts of John Paul Leone, which again really brilliant, showing his sense of design and his his sense of style and his sense of storytelling. And then we get a couple of essays, one from uh, one from Michael Davis, one from Kurt Busick, and there's also a Batman black and white story from the DC Vault from John Paul Leone. And there's also a story that hadn't been printed before, um, that is a Riddler story from John Paulione, uh, and Rom V is the one that wrote it. I don't know where it was supposed to show up previously, but that's a great story and maybe my my favorite thing in the whole issue, um, because it's again it's just fantastic sense of storytelling and mood and color and it just works uh, works perfectly. So um, the only thing that might rival that. Uh, the Riddler, or the uh, the question story rather, is the uh, the pinup we get from Lee Bermejo, which is just stunning. It's in the background we've got the Gotham skyline, and then superimposed on that we've got a picture or an illustration of John Paul Leone, and in the foreground we've got uh, an illustration of Batman. And Bermejo does that illustration of Batman in the style of John Paul Leone, uh, and it's. It's gorgeous. Like I would love to have that to to hang up uh, in my studio as a as a tribute to John Paul. So uh, it took a long time for this issue, issue to come out. I think in the end, that's good because uh, they needed as much time as they needed in order to get it to be what it is, which I think is a is a fitting tribute. I mean, nothing could ever replace having John Paul Leone, and we're all poorer for for him having lost his battle with cancer and, and us no longer being able to experience his art. Um, but I feel like this is a, a fitting tribute. So uh, what were your thoughts on it, Rocky?
1: Uh, yeah, it's very much a tribute. I have to admit, I, I, I learned much more about John Paul Leon after he died than he ever did when he was alive. I, when I've been collecting for a long time. So I, uh, I, I say that with some degree of ego, uh, but obviously it just goes to show you that what the hell do I know? <laughs> uh, th- this guy really he's an amazing artist I, I, I never I openly admit I never appreciated his art enough during his lifetime uh, uh, yeah, he's a good artist I, one thing that stands out for this is that my initial my initial criticism and I'm gonna sound like a jerk saying this but I thought you know it's 86 pages like why it's, it's, it just seemed like I mean this this wasn't about John Paul Leon it was about every, every other artist wanting to get uh, for their own egos wanting to get they wanted to draw something for this tribute uh, why? I mean, I mean, their, their drawings aren't, you know, other than Lee Bermejo, Bermejo's picture of John Paul in the background, this is just padding a comic book and making it overpriced and increasing the likelihood that fewer people are going to buy this tribute. Why? Because you've added 40 pages of useless pin-ups and exposition uh, from other people. Now, <laughs> I know I sounded like a real jerk saying that. Uh, I also think that the story is, I think Tom King's story is, once again, completely baffling. I don't understand his Selena Kyle. So from a storytelling point of view, I'm just baffled. And I, so, but I mean, from art, artistically, yeah, it's great. I mean, yeah, this is, this is pinup art. This is a pinup art. But I'm not, I'm not really on this, on this big love train for this. Like, as a tribute, this is overpriced. This would have gone much farther had they eliminated 40, 50 pages and just simply done uh, exactly what it was, which was a Batman Catwoman special uh with with the with the Kurt Busiek uh story that that would have been that would have been fine but um you know if it's truly a tribute then DC should have fit the bill for the 40 extra pages <clears throat> but that's me being uh that's me being cynical I mean that's what a real tribute is is that if you're as a corporation if they if if, if they're going to do that but a uh, shame on me for being so uh cynical but uh in any event i agree with you on the riddler story i quite enjoyed that it's it's in black and white but you get a sense of his uh, artistic style i'm i'm still uh, even after all this you know four decades of reading comics and i'm still learning the language of how to describe art and i i think i uh, and i thank you for improving my uh, ever ever in need of improving skills in that department but yeah i mean he's a he's a great artist i'm uh, as far as the story itself i'm as i'm as I'm a little bit baffled by Selena's behavior from Christmas to Christmas. She died uh, an old lady that was just as uh, apparently as stupid as she was when she was 12 years old. Uh, she, she learned very little in her life. Uh, she, she contributed nothing to so many people in her life. The only thing good in her life that happened to her was Bruce Wayne. She was in love with Bruce Wayne. But in terms of what she brought to the table, it was very little. Uh, one point in the story, Bruce Wayne, uh, in older years, he actually he, he bought it. He had a shell company. And in the story, he actually bought he bought a museum that had a diamond in it so that she could, as, as Catwoman, she could actually steal a diamond, try to steal it, and she wouldn't get in trouble if she stole it because Bruce Wayne owned the company. And then she has the audacity to say, to say to him, God damn it, even after all these years, you still don't know me. And um, that's exactly how I feel about Tom King's Catwoman. I, I don't understand his Catwoman at all. Uh she's she she defeats everyone. She's better than everyone. She's smarter than everyone. Uh she's always a smart ass. She always seems to be miserable. Even at the end, she can't even die without being a with a sarcastic a quip out of her mouth. Uh, I actually found this from a from a character standpoint to be uh and that's how I read this. I didn't read this as a tribute to Jean Paul Leon because his art's that good. It's a tribute to his art that he draw he drew Selena in such a way that uh he he, he he meshed with Tom King's uh, sensibilities quite well. But she, Selena dies at the end of this story, uh, basically being shot by a guy she's mugged and she she says, oh honey, you're doing it all wrong. So she's even criticizing the guy who's mugging her and killing her as, as he's doing it wrong. Bruce Wayne couldn't do anything right. Her daughter can't do anything right. She can't do anything, uh, no one can do anything right. And uh, even uh, even the Selena Wayne Foundation for the orphanage, she's insisting she's insisting that everybody have let everybody have a cat, you know. Uh, so, I don't know. I found this to be a little bit, uh, you know, you know, kind of a little bit annoying. But uh, again, nice enough tribute. And I'll leave it at that. What happened? What happened? <laughs> oh. I don't know. I will bring you back on. Okay, just a moment here. We're waiting for Jace. I don't know what happened. Okay,
0: you're back in. It's
1: all good. we yeah. Was on. it only me?
0: Like you, f- I was talking and talking and talking, and then I switched back, and you were frozen, and I was frozen. Did uh, I drop no, out? I, I, no, I think it, it, it's all good. Uh, we're good to go. Okay. What, was where do I just need to start over with Batman Catwoman? Or? No, no,
1: no, we're done. We're still going. We, we never stopped recording. Oh, we keep on okay. talking, man. It's all good. Oh,
0: geez, that's, <laughs> so, that's so strange. Yeah. So uh, okay. we're going to the next yeah. one now where
1: unless you want to say more about Batman Catwoman.
0: No, nah, I thought it was stunning. Well, I mean, I didn't get to hear what you say. Did you, did you enjoy it?
1: Uh, oh, uh, sorry. You never, mm-hmm. you never heard what I said. Oh, no, uh, no I, I had some. No, I I, I didn't like the story. I I, I didn't like his portrayal of Selina Kyle. And uh, I I went on and on on the riff about it, which uh, I guess you can listen to. But I I was disappointed with the story. And I don't understand his interpretation of Selina Kyle, which is in keeping with his, I thought, was just as bad as his portrayal of Selina Kyle in the Batman Catwoman main series. It's consistent with that. So people that are loving that are going to love this. But uh, yeah, that, don't. that's
0: fair. That's fair. And I, I can't say that I disagree with you actually when I, if I stop and think about it, because Tom Tom's version of Selena Kyle is not a version I enjoy. I, I much prefer Ron V's version yeah. jury's still out on Tinny Howard's version. Didn't particularly enjoy the first issue, but we'll see. Uh, all right, let's move on. I'm really curious about this next one. I think we're going to disagree on it, but we'll see. Uh, we're up to action comics number 1039 it's a War World Saga Part Four, uh, from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Ricardo Federici is the artist, Lee Luffridge on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Uh and yeah, there Superman is on on Warworld and sort of Im- I guess for lack of a better term, embracing his role as a gladiator. Uh, what'd you think? Uh
1: I thought this uh first of all I uh, I want I want to give a compliment to uh Riccardo Federucci on the Art Federucci on the art. I think it's really good. I, it really captures the gladiator sort of sensibilities and the tone and the feel of Warzone of of Warworld very well. What Philip Kennedy Johnson does really well here is that I'm feeling a sense of the culture of War World. He sort of really draws the reader in, pulls the reader in. I love how Superman is slowly, he's slowly learning how to fight better because he's used to being invulnerable, so that affects his fighting style. There's another character that he meets, uh, uh, sort of another Phaelosian Fe- who sort of helps train him, this acrylics uh, character. This Krilov's character has lost a, a wife and three daughters, and and, uh, and he's got a history, and and he's he's sort of trying to tell Kalal, you know, you gotta you gotta remember you're not invulnerable, you gotta you gotta fight as if you can actually die because you actually can, and you gotta be careful what you do. Meanwhile, Kalal is noticing that the the, high, the blood priests of War World. They—they're reading uh, when they read their language that he realizes that they don't really know how to read what's written on the walls. That Warworld is so old, and there's there's hundreds of thousands of alien technologies and people that have built layer upon layer to Warworld that uh, it's, it's got its own, langu- it's, its own language that the blood priests themselves don't understand, but Superman is slowly learning the language because Superman over time has learned thousands of alien languages, and it's the same language he notices that are on the walls, that are on the Genesis fragment, that same Genesis fragment that was on the ship that crashed land on Earth, where there was that sort of a dispute between the Atlanteans and the U.S. government. Superman ended up taking the Genesis fragment to the Fortress of Solitude, where he ended up meeting the Phaelosian uh, refugees and ultimately Made the decision to go to Warworld to free all the Phalosian slaves, and of course he brought the rest of the authority with him. And there, and 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 on Warworld now, Midnighter in this is in this issue is trying to free Apollo, and we have Omak. The character Omak uh, is uh, with Natasha, and Natasha Natasha Irons uh, has has remained optimistic. She's with Superman. Natasha utilizes her abilities like she she's a really good fighter she so they're both her and omak both natasha irons and omak are winning battles and so they're getting more chains right i am he who holds all chains that's omak and the more battles you win you, you get to take your opponent's chains and so they're they're acquiring chains natasha irons is very very smart she's utilizing it to try to she actually becomes a um, an apprentice to leonith this, the blacksmith and she builds Superman his iron sort of S that he's going to wear in future battles when he's on the on on the on the battlefield and all this is playing out and while all this is playing out we we uh in the background uh we we see like people singing faelosian singing their song and where as Superman is healing from his wounds and Krillox is helping him heal and we're learning more about this uh, about some of the rituals. the The warzones take pride when it, when an alien race becomes extinct. They view it as. Uh propping up the superiority of War World. And there's actually a ceremony that we bear witness to that where they actually celebrate the extinction of an alien species because it's weak. And uh, and and Superman making promises that I'm wondering if Superman can keep all these promises because Superman's promising that I'm going to avenge you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find your, your ancestors. And I'm going to, you know, he's not only going to save the day, but Superman is one day going to Bring all these disgruntled and 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 persecuted alien races together one day, and I mean he's really really making promises. I'm wondering if his body can actually cash all the all the things that's coming out of his mouth. But he's Superman, so we'll see what. I'm sure, I'm I'm sure writer Philip Kennedy Johnson has got all that in play. But you know you couldn't get this reminds me a lot of uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson when he did the uh, oh he had that series uh twelve ten issue series, what was it?
0: Uh, the last god
1: thank you the last god i mean uh, just fantastic art in fact fact, i think it is the same artist Federici. federucci certainly reminds me of it but just it's it's beautiful it's gorgeous uh i'm i'm really enjoying this and i you know i think this is i think this is going to be one one of those comics one of those series that's going to be people are going to appreciate it more uh after the fact and i think it's going to sell really well in trade because this this in my view, it keeps getting better and better. But, uh, uh are you, are you going to disagree with me on this, Chase?
0: I sure the heck am going to disagree <laughs> with you. Um, first of all, I love the cover that, that cover reminds me of a, of, a you know, you can see it behind me, uh, and Rocky, it reminds me of like a seventies movie poster. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I won't disagree with you in that the story is interesting And it may sell well in trade, but the thing about this is this does not in any way feel like a Superman story to me. Uh, I almost feel like substitute Batman for Superman, substitute Midnighter, like move Midnighter from where he is into where Superman is. And I know you'd have to change some other things around because Midnighter's not as powerful or whatever, but to me that would make more sense. You know, he had to uh, Philip Kenny Johnson, he had to j- jump through so many hoops to put Superman in this depowered state to make this work, and it just feels contrived. That's not to say that there aren't things that are good. I, I agree with Rocky in that the-, the culture building, the world building for War World and the theologians that are trapped there and the the hierarchy and the, the culture, the sort of misinformation and traditions and, and buy-in that the slaves have given— oh, I need more links in the chain, that's what's actually... Like, all that is is fantastic and really interesting and great world-building, but it's not a Superman story. It doesn't feel like a Superman story to me. Um, And the other part I go back to is if... And maybe this ties into that, you know, not feeling like a Superman story. Superman would want these people to be rescued as soon as possible and stop being tortured. The longer it takes to, uh, to rescue these people, to free them from Mongol's rule the more are going to die. Why, why isn't the Justice League there? Why did he put together this, I'm sorry, frankly, a crappy team of people to go there with him, you know, <laughs> untested, not a very high power level. I'm like, no, you get the best and the brightest and you go out there and you kick Mongols' ass and you free these people, especially if they're survivors of Krypton or survivors of a, you know, of a, of a Kryptonian tribe that, that separated for a long time. Like that's going to matter to him. So it's never rang true to me that he's like, no, I have to do this on my own, blah, blah, blah. No, this doesn't feel like a Superman story. Is it an interesting story? Am I intrigued by the story? Yes, but it doesn't feel like a Superman story. And I've said this before, the Exile story from Roger Stern has done this before and done it better in terms of making it a Superman story. Superman out in space, fighting on Warworld, weakened state, that made more sense to me. This doesn't make sense. As far as the art goes, uh I like the nuanced art of uh, Federici. I, I think that, you know, he mostly does covers. We've talked about this before. we were talking about Batman Fear State Alpha and he did the interiors. I was blown away by it. His sense of storytelling, everything is fantastic. I love his art. I do have a nitpick about the art, however, and it it's and I don't want to I don't want to disparage the color artist Lee Luffridge because he's extremely talented. And he does a lot of really cool things in here, especially if you're watching us on YouTube. Rocky's showing these, these pages uh, uh, of the interior of War World where there's a lot of blues and greens and whatnot. The problem I have with it, again, it, it, it's perpetuating that feeling for me of not having it feel like a Superman story. In the early pages where we're seeing Superman out there battling in the gladiatorial arena of War World, it's, it's like it's all brown. It's all tan. It, it's all like this desert tone that makes m- me feel like I'm actually watching a, a battle in gladiatorial Rome. And maybe that's the point of it. But at no point prior to this in Warworld have we seen Warworld colored this way. And again, it, it makes it feel like this isn't a cosmic story. They're not in, out in space. We're told in this issue itself about how Warworld is this metallic. Uh, built up infrastructure over the core of what was actually once a planet. So if, if it's futuristic and it's made from all the scavenged metal and whatnot, it would be bluish and gray and, and cold and dead in that way, instead of feeling like it's taking place in this gladiatorial arena in the in the desert where everything is brown. Where, where are all these brown tones coming from? Like it felt so out of place to me, those early pages, um, like why does even why is even the quality of light like this it hasn't been colored like this at any point now maybe these colors maybe he made these color choices based on the fact that this was what was going to make uh, federici's art look the best and i can understand that if, if if that's the reason but it it just pulled me out of the story so much um that it that it bugged me uh but it's only those first few pages so i know i'm, I'm nitpicking a little bit once we get down into the like the blacksmith area where you add in some reds because of all the fires that are going and then we're in the cells uh, and it's got the greenish tinge and whatnot. Uh, I, I don't really have much complaint about that, but that first sequence, it just bugged me. I was like, why is everything brown and tan? Um, and I'm having a hard time getting over the fact that this just doesn't feel like a Superman story. And, and for me, you know, after following on Bendis who's run on Superman, I really didn't care for. And now we're up to Philip Kennedy Johnson And I, I'm just, I'm sort of waiting, like, when am I going to get some Superman books that I actually feel like are Superman books? So again, it's, I'm interested in the story, but I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know.
1: Honestly, I just, Oh, I, um, I respectfully disagree with you. I, uh, I don't know if you could, uh, you, you, you conked out there for a bit. But anyways, I'm enjoying this story, and we'll have to wait and see. Uh, hopefully, I mean, I'm sure he's building up to a, a, a hell of a Superman return here. And I look at Apollo here all glowing yellow and with sunlight. So at some point, I, I imagine Apollo's going to power up Kal-El, and we're going to get some kick-ass action.
0: Well, that'll feel more like a Superman story. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not enjoying the story. I'm just saying, for me, it doesn't feel like a Superman story. Mm. that's what's that's what's frustrating but I am intrigued I want to know what's gonna go down but I'm also highly anticipating like I want this to be over <laughs> I, I want something else uh, the backup story is Martian Manhunter uh, let me give the credits real fast a uh, face in the crowd from Sean Aldrich He's the writer a- Adriana Mello is the artist hi-fi does the colors and Dave Sharp does letters um, yeah we get the I guess the villains of the story revealed what did you think Rocky
1: yeah, I, I just I I just skim read this. I'm not uh, honestly. I I think this is a significant miss. I don't know why is this. I don't know why Action Comics has a backup. <laughs> I just I'm I I I think this is such a glaring misfire to have Martian Manhunter as a backup to an Action Comics story where he's on Warworld. If anything, I mean, I remember during Future State we had a backup feature of the Black Racer. Or something that was actually on Warworld. We can do more Warworld building with a backup. Instead, we're getting Martian Manhunter, an, another dumbfoundedly stupid editorial decision. Uh, I'm just baffled by this, but because I, I have no interest in this whatsoever, and I just skim read it, and I unfortunately, I hate to say it, but I got nothing to say about it, and and uh, that's part of my criticism. I mean, when you put something that has nothing nothing to do with the main story, I, I, again, this is just too much of a miss for me. And it shows too much of a disconnect. Um, I mean, maybe it's a good story. I'll never know because I'm, I'm not interested in reading this, to be honest with you. I'm not, you know, I I don't know what happened. Did did you happen
0: to read it? Yeah, I've I've been reading it all along. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Martian Manhunter. This characterization that Sean Aldris gives him feels different than any characterization we've had from him before. Feels like just generic superhero, so that's a, a little bit of a problem. I agree with you. I, I much rather would have a backup that focuses on the history of the theologians even if it's just one theologian or or the blacksmith, or or go back to the Black Racer. You know, well, we, we we talked to Jeremy Adams, who wrote that story recently, and you know yeah. he would have been open to doing more Black Racers. So so yeah, I this is just okay. The thing, the reason that I even brought it up at all we get this, this, this new organization that's behind whatever's been going on in the story and they're called the vultures as opposed to the, the owls, you know, court of owls, court of owls but yeah. they look, they look almost exactly like the court of owls, except <laughs> yes, they do their, their masks are <laughs> yellow in tone instead of white. And if you notice, like there's a couple of lines on the cheeks to make uh-huh. it look more narrow, like a, the yeah. beak of a vulture. And I'm like, could this be more derivative really? It's like they're so, out of
1: ideas or something.
0: Oh, yeah, on. like you, you couldn't come up with a, another organization, so you stole from Scott Snyder. I mean, if we're going to steal from somebody, I guess steal from Scott Snyder, but yeah. this just – I was like, really? Somebody said this was okay? It's it, its one thing to create a new villain group and call them the vultures, whatever, but with the, the masks that are just, you know, blank with nothing but eyes, yeah. I mean, anybody glancing at this would just assume that this is the court of owls, and the reason the masks look yellow is because of the, you know, color of the light that's shining on it um but you can yeah, see if you're watching us on youtube you can see the little vulture uh embossed on the front of the desk that guy's sitting at so <laughs> I, I don't know man super derivative felt kind of lazy to me uh and that's i i don't know i, I i'm not that familiar with sean aldrich so uh yeah it's a, it's a miss for me uh all right up next we have static season one Number five, it's a penultimate issue. It's called Prison Break. It's written by Vita Ayala. Art is by Nicholas Draper Ivy. Letters are by Anne World Design. Uh, we saw last at the end of last issue. Um, Static was uh, was in a fight, got his face burned off by uh, by heat stroke. Um, he There's an I, I don't remember ever seeing this from from the first, uh, from the first series of shati- uh, of static shock, but it's a really, really cool sort of feature that they've added in. So one of his friends, who apparently is into science, or whatever, gave him some glucose pills, you know, like sugar pills, yeah. knowing that ha- you know his his level of energy output, electro- electrical output, or whatever, is tied into like his metabolism. So you know, he gets half of his face burned off by by heat stroke. He pops a couple of these sugar pills and it like boosts his powers. Cause it's like boosting his metabolism as it breaks down the sugar. And it even to the point where it uh, speeds up his healing process. And so he, he doesn't heal all the way from having his face burned off, but he's in a lot better shape. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a pretty cool uh, aspect of the character. Not one that I'm familiar with uh, from previous. He goes in, he helps his friends break out uh, the other bang babies that were captured but then in a, in a twist at the end, it turns out some of the bang babies that are being housed in this warehouse are not necessarily uh, they are not necessarily there against their will. They say, we've been promised a sack full of cash and we're not going to let you mess this up. And they're going to actually try to impede the, this rescue attempt that Static and his friends are are trying. So um, it's all out action in this one. We don't get much of what's been the strength of the series for me from Vita Ayala. They've done a a really great job of giving us the interaction between Static and and Static's family. Um, I saw some interviews that Vita did where they said uh, they specifically didn't want Static to have any kind of broken home. They wanted Static to have a very stable uh, kind of home life and get away from that stereotype of, of having, you know, broken home and trauma in the home life or what have you. That's been a real strength of the series. But I think just in terms of having the real estate and the space, it, it was time to really have one of these issues where it's all out of action. And that's really what we get here. So I really enjoyed the issue. Uh, as far as the art goes, it's all Nicholas Draper Ivy. Previous to this, he'd been um, uh, collaborating a lot with Chris Cross. We get all his art this time. It's, it's not quite as clean as I would like it, but he does some really interesting things in terms of some glitchy art, the lightning um, the color work, uh, because he does all the art. Uh, and I, I think the fact that he's doing the line work and the colors, it really allows him to do some really cool things. Like again, with the glitch art, like when we see screens, video screens or whatnot, um, and, and really give us that glow effect. So, um, it's still not my favorite of the milestone books, but it's, it's pretty solid. I, I definitely enjoyed the issue. So, What do you think, Rocky?
1: Uh, Well, Nicholas Draper-Ivy, as an artist, uh, he really stands out here. I'll admit there's a few scenes where I'm not entirely sure what's going on. If it wasn't for the dialogue, I I wouldn't have been clear as to what was taking on in terms of the action. But I got to say that this art really is – it captures my eye. There's something really – uh it's almost like he's and again i i i forgive i don't possess the language upon which to adequately describe this. it feels like it's almost like some watercolors here and it's almost as if he's being (laughs) he's really trying to be fancy on the art and it kind of works and and the, the colors pop off the page i mean this is really really truly gorgeous art now in terms of the story itself I'm finding that the story here, the the reason why I like Icon and Rocket as a comic book in terms of storytelling-wise so much more is that I really find the story so much more compelling in Icon and Rocket and uh, less so in hardware. And then in in Static here, I do find it somewhat derivative. I mean, government, you know, a government secret black ops base where they're kidnapping all the the bang babies that during the Big Bang Parade, uh, you know, there was an explosion uh, and of course, the guy, uh, you know, the the hardware guy, the, he, he's blamed for that. And all these children gain superpowers, and as they're growing older, the government wants to control all these kids. And here in this issue, it sort of comes to a head with Static wanting Static and his friends trying to free everyone. And there's a there's a neck inhibitor that prevents them from utilizing their their powers to to help them escape. He he uses his electrical powers to to sort of get rid of that and and to short circuit that he also i unlike you I, I don't quite understand that the glucose tablet thing why 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 i mean it's funny my my daughter has just has just become a diabetic I, I i know what glucose is and and what have you but i i don't know what that has to do with electricity and i don't know how that helps him utilize his powers i've i've never maybe i'll have to reread that but it's interesting that he you know he takes on heat wave or i guess hot streak and it's interesting that, and not surprising that some of the some of these these Bang Babies, as they're called, it would it would make sense that some of them they're a lot like mutants in a way. It's sort of a take on mutants. You're going to have good mutants, and you're going to have bad mutants. And uh, I don't think we haven't got a name yet for the group of bad bad mutants. Uh, but you know, I like it. It's it's building a mythology here. I think Vida Ayala, while I think that while she's not really breaking new ground here, she is telling a, a good enough story that I'm enjoying. Uh, the character Darius is, uh, at one point, he's a, in his own words, he describes himself as a gay black dude, quote unquote, and he's, and he's tired, ty- and he says, he says to a static at one point, you know, being angry is not an option, uh, being, being angry only gets people killed, and he says it wasn't, it's not been the first time that he's been in danger of losing his life over existing, so I'm, I'm, there's clearly, there's, there's some referencing there to his, <clears throat> his struggles as a, as a gay a black, boy growing up and so you know there's that and, uh, and, and and that makes sense there I think in the context of the story and so uh, and that's and you got the right writer for that who can understand that being in v- Vida Ayala, and it works in the context of the story and with the characters and as a whole package uh, I do think this works really well and the art really for me really sells it. The art pulls me in to the story and even the dialogue and the lettering the, the lettering itself, when they're when they're whispering to each other, is is decidedly uh, less less black. You know, it's lighter in, in tone, and it works. There's a lot of you can tell. There's a lot of work that goes into these pages more so than in some of the other comics we're reviewing. So uh, overall, I, I am impressed. I'm impressed with Vida Ayala. I like her work here, and I like her work on Nubia and the Amazons it, with her collaboration with uh, Stephanie Williams.
0: Yeah, and, and to be clear, so Vida By- Ayala, she's not she's non-binary, so uh um, right. goes by the they, they or, or them um and and yeah they yeah. I, I i agree the perfect writer because they not only you know write the the gay character in the book very well from a, a, a from that point of view having lived through that being a non-binary person but also the 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 african american uh perspective as well and they also grew up in new york so I have a feeling and I haven't talked to Vita in a while. She's been like super busy and hasn't been doing a lot of interviews because we talked about having her on the show a while back. Like been over a year now actually. Um, but it's something that I want to talk to them about is is you know, just how personal this book is and, and what they're bringing to the to the story because I you're right. They they are the perfect uh, the perfect writer for the, for Static 100% uh all right let's move on next book oh man do we have to talk about about this one it's 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 justice league number 71 um written by brian michael bendis let me get to the the credits here uh i think it's uh wait where are the credits in this one it looks like uh, i couldn't find the credits Uh, it's, it's on the it's on that title page uh in very small print so yeah written by brian michael bendis phil hester does the pencils inks by eric gapster Colors by Ramufo Fajardo Jr. Letters by Josh Reed, and uh, it's your turn to go first, Rocky. So I'm happy about that. <laughs> well, <it> <laughs> I I, I got to tell you, I'm uh I'm uh
1: the Royal Flush Gang is unquestionably got to be one of the most incompetent uh, uh, gangs in the in DC Comics at this point. But you know, let, let me just you know the positive, to be positive about this. Bendis had the potential here to make the Royal Flush Gang. Uh, a pretty cool gang you know if 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 the intention of Brian Bennis here, I think his intention god forbid i 'm going to pretend to know what Brian Bennis was trying to do, but I think he was trying to prop up the Royal Flush gang as being a gang that was uh, you know that this was supposed to be the ultimate heist because if I was to tell you that this storylines involved the Royal Flush gang. Creating a bunch of misdirection to have to pit hero against hero and make the the fortress of solitude disappear all as a massive distraction so that they could utilize some weapons in the fortress of solitude to utilize some of those weapons to pull a massive piece of meteorite rock to the earth that contains rare minerals that are more expensive and more rare than anything on the planet on the surface that sounds like kind of a cool Maybe that would be a cool black label story, you know, and it could be like, you know, some adult language and, you know, some gravitas and some... I mean, it sounds like... It sounds potentially cool, right? And that's actually what exactly happens here, but yet somehow under under the script of Bennis, everything is is kind of a joke. He literally explains everything on the first page and that, uh, you know, the Justice League and Checkmate... I mean, all, you know... Justice League and Checkmate discover who is behind the impossible theft, you know, because the Justice League needs Checkmate to find the Royal Flush Gang. <laughs> you know? I mean, and, and, and really what happens, I mean, literally Superman confronts the, I don't know, the, the Jack of Hearts who has one of those, uh, the crystals of the fortress of solitude in him. And, and he basically apologizes to Superman and, you know, immediately spills the beans, uh, and, and it's clear that they bit off way more than they could chew. Uh, so many things don't make sense here. Uh, Naomi at one point makes a comment to Superman. She can't believe how forgiving Superman is. Uh, at one point, Green Arrow says to, the Jag- says to the Royal Flush Gang, are you sure you want Superman pissed off at you? And it's like, really? If, if there was any hero in the universe that I would happily piss off and not, worried about, not worry about getting hurt, it would be Superman. The guy doesn't hurt a flea. I mean, I mean, there's nothing about Superman under Venice that in any way, shape, or form, do I look at Superman under Venice and say, this guy's a threat, this guy's tough. No, this guy is kind of a pushover, he's a wussy, he's walked over by his wife, he's walked over by his son, anybody can walk over this guy, including whatever villain of the month happens to walk by. Uh, I'm getting a little bit on a rant here, but this entire joke, literally there's an adventure here. Did you know that when the Royal Flush Gang made the Fortress of Solitude disappear, that somehow that that managed to accidentally open up all extra-dimensional portal doors, and the Justice League through a period of two four, four pages, two double-page spreads of the Justice League, and it looks like the JSA and multiple other heroes battled extra-dimensional forces, including, by the looks of it, Trigon of all people. I mean, I'm sorry, did I say two? I meant I meant a total of six pages, three double-page spreads of them fighting all these extra-dimensional monsters. And And winning the day, so all this happened literally, we only got glimpses of it. so this massive extra dimensional adventure we 're not privy to we 're just kind of told it happened, and we get you know Phil Hester on his art. I want to give props to phil hester he 's not my cup of tea as an artist, quite frankly, but you know he he is he utilizes his full skills here. he does a good job on these double paid spreads the the coloring by uh, Romulo Fajardo Jr. and the colors really pop off the page. So full props to Phil Hester and Fajardo Jr. They're at they're at the top of their game, the best that they can put forward. And I I like the art. Uh, Story wise, though, it just it just doesn't cut it for me. I don't really see what the big deal is. At what point? At one point Superman looks like he's exhausted? Naomi comments about how patient Superman is, and you know, Black Adam once again is written out of character. Uh, the black, the Royal Flush Gang tries to escape. Uh, they're easily, they're easily, you know, taken out of the equation. And then it, it ends with Leonardo Lane, Lois Lane's brother, being being asked to become a member of Checkmate. Why? Because nobody knows anything about him. So well, why not invite him to be to, to to join Checkmate and be privy to top secret information and that is only controlled by the Justice League? Uh, there, there's so much here that makes me shake my head. Uh, but I. <laughs> You know what? I'm just going to be quiet and I'm going to let you talk.
0: <laughs> oh, man, Ah I don't really have much to say that's not, that's positive. Um, yeah. I mean, does anybody, okay. First of all, does anybody care about Damon Rose? Does anybody care about the fact that Lois Lane has a brother except for Brian Michael Bennis? Like, I don't know. Nobody, nobody care- Like it wasn't a good idea. It's, it wasn't a good idea when you did it. It's not a good idea now. Just everybody else is going to, but is going to move on from Justice League. Uh, and it won't be talked about ever. Like, the, like this biggest score ever, did it, did did we ever have a, a, a comic that had less actually happen? Like, all this Justice League book has been for, like, the last couple of issues is the Justice League standing around talking about things happening when hardly anything actually happens. Everything happens off-panel. Uh, we saw it in Benice's in Leviathan series as well. It seems like that's kind of the mode that he's in, where it's just a bunch of talking heads uh, instead of seeing the actions, we're, we're just told about the action. So, I mean, I guess in, in, in defense, one thing he did do good, we, we talked about how it felt like it's uh, he was trying to elevate the Royal Flush Gang, and we, we said how ludicrous that is. <laughs> at least he did remain true to form in terms of giving us an authentic version of the, the Royal Flush Gang, because they are completely incompetent, and this at least went down the, the way it would have. Uh, I agree with you on the double-page spreads. I, I think Phil Hester is an excellent storyteller. But I've said it before. I've said it during this entire Justice League run. I said it when he did Superman. His style isn't that well-suited for superhero books. So if it wasn't that well-suited, you know, he's much more like Slice of Life or Crime Noir or even Horror, um, and we saw that when he did Superman, then okay, take him off of Superman or Action Comics and put him on the Justice League where he's got to draw tens of tens of superheroes? Like It makes no sense. Like It's not a good editorial decision at all. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't begrudge Phil for taking the job at all. You know, maybe he's getting paid per character. By all means, you know, draw away. But um, th- I mean, there is some good stuff here. Like, like I said, Bendis making the ju- making the Royal Flush game look incompetent is on brand. That works. Their their idea, the fact they were going to steal this giant space rock, that I thought that was a really cool idea. It was kind of funny how they talked about, hey, you know, whenever we need it, we we grow it up to. Um, it's normal size. We take what we need and we shrink it back down. We just keep it on our desk as like a, a, a paper world's most expensive paper. Like all that stuff's kind of, kind of fun. The problem is that in order for Bennett to explain this, we get just walls of dialogue, just it's like so much dialogue. It, it's, it's kind of exhausting to, to read. So, uh, and yeah, we're not getting any char- characterization here because I just don't think this type of book, is suited for bennis's style of writing anymore you know i know he did avengers he did x-men and, and people have talked about what a great job in those books but there's just so there are so many characters here and and some of these characters that we don't know that well like you mentioned you know we have naomi here we don't even really know naomi's characterization or who she really is so how can we say how authentic she is or, or how consistent her um her characterization is you know we we've got the um what's her name? The, the, the female, um, what? manhunter, Kate, something. Kate
1: Spencer, Kate Spencer. Kate Spencer.
0: That's it. Yeah. Kate Spencer. Yeah. Same, same thing with her, right? Like she's not a well enough known person for us to really, you know, know her characterization. Same with Hippolyta in this context. So it's like, if, if Bendis is going to do justice league, he should have like, he should have kept it to the core characters that, that we know. And then you don't have so much dialog it's the book doesn't feel so crowded like, it just doesn't feel like Bendis has enough space to tell the kind of story he's, he's telling. Um, and then the bones of that story feel like they have some flaws as well. So it ends up feeling like just this unfinished kind of stew where everything is thrown in and muddled all together. The other thing I don't understand is what in God's name is Superman doing here? Like, we were told in the beginning when it got announced... For Bendis's Justice League, that Superman wasn't going to be there because Superman was going to be off on Warworld. How the hell is Superman here? I don't, I don't, that doesn't make any sense for me. I, I, he needed to be because Bendis needed him to be because Fortress of Solitude, I guess. Yeah. But again, it, it you know, it goes to the kind of the messy overall feel right now of, of the, of the DC universe. So, yeah. And, and the Damon Rose thing, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I don't think anybody really cares about the character, but to Venice's credit, if you are going to put him somewhere, yeah, put him in checkmate, I guess. Um, not that I think we're going to have a checkmate series. Cause I don't think the sales on it were very good. So yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, I was just going to say, I uh, can with, with uh, I was going to talk, uh, talk about the backup feature of justice league dark here. Which, yeah,
0: uh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's much better. Last thing I'll say is, is it has been announced that Bendis is leaving Justice League. Um, and we know we're getting the death of the Justice League, uh, which I think James Williamson is, or Joshua Williamson is writing. Is
1: yeah. That?
0: Yeah, he's, so, yeah. So yeah, he's, ba- basically, he's... Bendis will jump off, Williamson will jump on and, and lead us up to killing off a bunch of the Justice Leaguers. And for, in Williamson's own words, we're not going to have a Justice League title for a while which maybe it'll be a case where absence makes the heart grow fonder. And as long as it doesn't come back with these type of stories and actually has some Justice League feeling stories, like I talked about how Action Comics hasn't felt like a Superman story. These don't really feel like Justice League stories. This feels like a checkmate, another kind of clumsy, clunky checkmate story. I mean, it doesn't feel like Justice League. But the the Justice League Dark story is very good.
1: Uh, when, when we were talking about uh, the state of the DC universe right now, it's it felt like the Justice League has been dead
0: for a while anyway.
1: So, I mean, killing yeah. them off. I mean, I, mean <laughs> I I know I'm being a facetious bastard saying that, but I mean, that's kind of how I feel like this. This is not the Justice League. This is sort of like, this is like somebody who's never read any DC comic trying to guess what a Justice League would be like if somebody just told him what the power set of the characters were. Um uh, This is uh, like, it's just, I I just shake my head. But uh, in any event, uh, uh, carrying on with Justice League Dark, with this chapter of Justice League Dark, I'm I'm sorry to report that in my opinion, this is the weakest chapter of the Justice League Dark. I, and with uh, criticism to uh, uh, Ram V here, uh, this is an exposition dump. Now Ram V is known for his exposition dumps, but usually when he uses exposition, Ram V is very good at, putting a lot of information in his exposition at the very least and conveying some sense of character development none of that is here wolves this is uh, this chapter is called wolves at the door and it is literally just a summary it, this is this entire uh big uh basically eight pages consists of uh Khalid uh Dr. Fate Khalid Nosur, writing a letter to Kent Nelson the uh his the, the prior Dr. Fate and he just summarizes everything it's literally uh Dr. Fate, writing a letter to Dr. Fate, all about the unmasking of Merlin, which we know how that, we, we have a general idea how that's going to take place. It's a long, convoluted story that goes all the way back to, to future state. Uh, and Ram V's built it up uh, over many issues and through uh, Justice League Dark. And we get, we get snapshots of Zatanna, uh, Constantine, uh, Ragman here. Zatanna thanks Ragman for keeping her secret uh, about her connection to the Upside Down Man. Uh, Elnara Rush to the 13th night, she makes an appearance and just the the machinations and the difficulties in that they're all going to confront, trying to uh, ultimately confront Merlin because Merlin is still trying to take over the tower of fate. And this is, this is just an exposition dump and Merlin is still out there trying to take over the tower of fate. We get beautiful, beautiful art here. I mean, just really beautiful art by Sumet Kumar, uh, the artist, uh, you know just sort of summarizing where each character is at as they move into the final end game as it were against Merlin but this was largely unnecessary and uh but again beautiful art but maybe it's almost like this is the collective sigh this is sort of like everybody all right everybody take a step back take a deep breath and then probably next issue we're going to we're going to get or or somewhere because it ends with this with with it saying that this is just the beginning it, the, everyone this is sort of like everyone like ram v uh and maybe this is ram v's last issue when with, with it sort of taking a collective breath saying this is where all the players on the chessboard are left moving into the final uh the final battle with merlin but that's basically where it is but so it's 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 maybe a, a nice little reprieve but it it doesn't move the story forward much at all
0: yeah i agree with you and i have mixed feelings about it. Mostly, I didn't mind, because you're right. Sumit Kumar, the artist, and Ramula Fajardo Jr., the color artist, do a fantastic job, as does Rob Lee, the, the letterist, uh, or letterer, uh, giving us this, this letter that, um, that Khalid is writing. I mean, right from the start, Wolves at the Door, that splash page, giving us that very esser uh scene there, where pillars go in all different directions. It, it was just gorgeous, like the, the color work, the line work, Fantastic and a great like refresher for what's been going on. I I didn't mind it because we get such small chunks of this Justice League Dark story at at a time. It's only eight pages, so it was great to get this refresher and be reminded who is Justice League Dark, where are they in terms of the story. It works for me. However, what I will say is when you collect Justice League Dark, which they are doing in its own trade this is going to feel like a complete ripoff wait i paid eight pages <laughs> in the trade to be retold what i just read in the in volume in the volume one trade like yeah. it's gonna feel real like i almost think dc would be better skipping the these pages when they collect it because yeah it is super uh redundant and and expositional but in, in terms for this because we do get such a small chunk each month and Um, and we read so many books, or I read so many books, it's hard to remember what's going on. I didn't, I didn't mind this, but I agree with a lot of what you're saying in terms of it. Does it move the story forward? Nope, not one bit. But it's a great catch-up, and I will say it's great for anybody who hasn't been reading Justice. Like if you haven't been reading Justice League Dark, if you haven't been picking up Justice League because you haven't liked what Bendis is doing, um, and you decide you want to, you know, you've heard good things about Justice League Dark, you want to jump on. You could jump on with this issue and read this and be be pretty much caught up. I mean, you've missed out on some context and some nuance, but you'd, be, you'd understand. You'd be able to read it going forward, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Harley Quinn number 11, Bad Math Part 1. We are aboard the Keepsake Express. Stephanie Phillips is the writer. Riley Rosmo is the artist. Yvonne Placencia does colors. Darren Bennett on letters. <sighs> uh, I think the art is is good. Anybody who listens to the podcast for a long time will know I'm not a big fan of Riley Rosmo's style, but it definitely works for Harley Quinn. Uh, And there are times when his art is the he's the perfectly suited artist for a particular story. That's the case with Harley Quinn. It was the case when he did the 12 issue Martian Manhunter series with Steve Orlando. So uh, I give a a lot of credit for Rosmo giving us really great art uh, and the colors from Yvonne Placencia. It suits Gotham. It's nice and um, and dark and moody, uh, but still plenty of pinks and and purples and whatnot because it is Harley Quinn, uh, and there's plenty of humor from Stephanie Phillips as well as we've come to expect from her. Um, she does a good job of balancing humor and seriousness uh, of Harley rather than just getting zany and kooky like some previous iterations of of Harley. Um, you know, right from the start on the on the first page, uh, she's talking about again. It's bad math is the name of the the story and she's on this train and there's a bomb and she's trying to figure out how to stop the bomb and on the bottom of the first page we even get a little illustration of it it shows the train with a bomb on it 80 miles per hour 250 miles and then we see a city on the other side so i I really i really like that Um, but as far as the story itself so she's trying to rescue her buddy kevin her sidekick kevin who we saw get kidnapped by keepsake at the end of last issue and it just feels like wait, didn't didn't we already have a story with harley trying to rescue kevin so it feels like we're going over ground that we've already gone over before. Um, and so that that feels a, a bit derivative. Plus it, it feels like honestly this villain keepsake has kind of overstayed his welcome at this point. Uh, as, as much as I don't feel like Harley's like some super formidable foe, like I had a big problem in Tom King's Heroes in Crisis when Harley was able to take on Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman and escape. Like that was just ridiculous. That being said, I think Harley would take out this keepsake villain in about two seconds, Um, but yet he's managed to hang around and be a thorn in her side repeatedly. And I just don't really, that doesn't really ring true to me. So, um, but that being said, I do enjoy the, like I said, the balance of the psychological, intellectual side of Harley. Uh, You know, she's got her self-help group that's going on here for former clowns and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Like that balance with the sort of smart humor that uh, Stephanie Phillips brings to the title works for me, um, so on that level it's working. On the the level of art, it's working. I just feel like okay, let's let let's move on past the whole magistrate, Joker war, uh, Hugo Strange keepsake kind of thing, and let, let's get to a new story. Like I I really enjoyed the the Poison Ivy issue that we got recently. It felt so different from what had come before. So like more of that. Let, let's move this along. The fact that this is Bad Math Part One. I hope this one doesn't drag on for a a long time like i hope harley can defeat keepsake once and for all i just i don't find keepsake to be a compelling villain and he in in all honesty for me he can't go away fast enough but again i know that i'm not the biggest harley fan harley is not a book that i would be reading uh if we weren't covering all the books um as much as i'm a fan of stephanie phillips i'm just i'm not a fan of harley so it's not a book that i would i would read otherwise so uh, maybe for people who are Harley fans, they might be enjoying it uh, more than me. Because again, there are things that I enjoy, especially the humor. Um, Harley even, you know, making reference to uh, to Terminator and screaming out hasta la vista" as she swings her uh, as she swings her bat. So, uh, what do you think, Rocky?
1: Uh well I, I I think Riley Rosmo as an artist continues to get uh, better and better I dare I say I think he actually is listening to some of the criticism of his art online but he he seeps, he puts his nose to the grindstone and his attention to detail like you know his his drawing of Harley and Kevin is getting I, I think it's improved I think his his detail his backgrounds are getting better that first initial page with that train that keepsake train looks fantastic. I mean, he, he, he does, I think he's he's improving as an artist. And, you know, I, I want to, I think he deserves some credit for that. And because, you know, dare I say, I mean, you know, social media, we can be very harsh sometimes. And Riley Rosmo, you know, along with guys like John Romita Jr., who I'm also not, you know, not initially a fan of. And, you know, they, they, they've they taken a lot of bullets and they take a lot of vitriol from fans. And uh, I think Riley Rosmo has gotten his fair share. And, uh, you know, I just what it's nice I think he deserves some credit for it. He's made Harley his own here. And uh, I agree with you about the storyline itself. I, I do think that, in fairness to Stephanie Phillips, for whatever reason, it would appear that editorially they had to take Poison Ivy out of this comic book. Uh, to me, Poison Ivy should be in this comic book. I don't know why Poison Ivy can be in the in the Eat, Bang, Kill TV comic, but they can't have Poison Ivy be a... Be a I mean, Poison Ivy in this Harley Quinn book, to me, is a given. It should be a given. You got the perfect writer for it, Stephanie Phillips. L- let her write a Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn ongoing adventures. I think that's right in Stephanie uh, Phillips' wheelhouse. It's really tragic that they've they've taken that away from her, and they've they've. I I think that. I might be wrong on this, but I I don't think it was Stephanie Phillips deciding, I don't want to write Poison Ivy.
0: I 100% agree with you. That's got to be an editorial thing.
1: Yeah, it had to be an editorial directive because there's no way anybody in the right skull would not want to write both those characters together if they had the opportunity. Uh, So clearly, I think it's taken out of her hands. But having said that, I do think this keepsake is sort of worn out as well. I mean, keepsake, man, you you are no Poison Ivy, my friend. Or my enemy. Uh, I I prefer you not being in this comic. I think he he has worn out his welcome. Part of it is because he was involved during the whole fear state thing, and I, I'm still maybe, you know, like a lot of us, we're kind of we want to put fear state behind us, and anything that reminds me of fear state, even a little bit, I kind of just want to move past it. And so, but having said that, I I agree with you that Stephanie Phillips does find a way to to pull some humor out of uh, any kind of situation, she, and she does. She's really good at giving Harley some gravitas in terms of her knowledge of psychology and, and her use use of humor as she sort of like very playfully and and sometimes quite seriously sort of dissect psychologically the people she's trying to help and in particular the one character in here whose name I, I for the life of me I, I'm not really sure who it is but in any event um you know like I said if, if you're if you've been with Harley this this far you're going to stay with her um uh, as I said, I would. Uh, I'm hoping that we get a different villain because I, uh, I, I hope that Stephanie Phillips. I'd, I'd like to see her explore different avenues with Harley because uh, this many issues in, it feels like we're sort of getting the same sort of uh, same re re retreading the same old. Uh, we, we've already been here before, so I'd like to. I'd like to see a different uh, storyline uh, coming up quick here.
0: Yep, I agree. Okay, this next one puts a smile on my face. Uh, the end, just cliffhanger ending, just blew me away. It was so unexpected. Uh, it's Detective Comics number 1050, Shadows of the Bat part four, The Tower part four, Mariko Tamaki's the writer, Yvonne Rice on pencils, Danny Mickey on inks, Brad Anderson does colors, Ariana Mare on letters. I, for the life of me, don't know why they decided that I mean, 1,050, is that really a landmark issue? Like, they wouldn't always do, like, if it was 550 or, you know, 650, who cares? Uh, you know, usually on the hundreds, they would do something, certainly on the thousand. So I just thought that was kind of funny. Maybe they just needed an exercise issue to get the, all 12 parts of the Shadows of the Bat story to actually fit. So didn't mind it necessarily. I mean, it's more Yvonne Reese art, so I'm all for that. Uh, but what were your thoughts on on this issue and this crazy well, cliffhanger, Rocky? Uh,
1: well, first of all, I want to give—I'm uh, not generally a big fan of having a bunch of covers. It's actually my pet peeve. I don't like comic books. I, I think there's way too many covers nowadays for comics. But every now and then, every now and then, it's rare, very rare. But this was one comic where almost every single issue of Detective Comics, every cover of Detective Comics, one thousand fifty. I really like, there's a, there's a, there's two covers where you can put together that show Bruce Wayne shows when one cover shows, uh, shows Batman with his mask off, uh, and looking down, uh, with the one with Alfred and Commissioner Gordon behind him, the one with his parents behind him. Uh, in fact, they're, they're both, both those covers are behind us. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, there's a great, uh, there's a great cover by, is that, I think, is that Lee Bermejo? Uh, um, yep. It's it's it shows Batman and in the background are sort of like the almost like the Bob Kane style artistic renditions of Batman and and maybe uh I don't know different artistic versions of Batman in the background. I really think it's it's really gorgeous. I really like it. And the yeah, it looks pretty- like
0: um, it looks like Bob Kane and yeah. then Dick Sprang is the the one that's right. up highest and then yeah that other one I, I think it's supposed to be a Jim Lee style and then obviously Bermejo's own own style. So yeah, that's yeah. the cover I got. Yeah no you know, th- yeah
1: thanks for that yeah because identifying giving credit to those artists because it's it's a really beautiful it's a gorgeous cover so and you know again and the two covers uh, that that go together I think speculator alert here there's some really nice uh, there's a great shot of the the blood and the the pearls the famous pearls splattering in the on the foreground of the one cover really well done and uh, yeah so very impressive on that lots of covers and um, in any event uh, I, I have to. I, I, I got into a discussion with someone at the comic shop and I, I won a no prize. I actually guessed this. I guessed the culprit. I, I'm, I'm, I, and, and I have no way of proving that. Uh, but so, you know, I, that's why I get a no prize. But I actually guessed who was behind everything because it, it never made any sense. As we all know, it didn't make any sense. What could explain? It can't be the medicine. Why are all these patients at Arkham Tower healing? How are they getting better? You know, uh, because as Nightwing said in in issue one thousand forty nine, he goes, "I mean, it's not like the old Arkham Asylum never gave their patients medicine. They're giving them the same medicine, but in different combinations. And now suddenly they're all cured. Suddenly they're walking around. There's no guards. This isn't making any sense. It sounds too good to be true. And of course, <laughs> it's exactly what it is. The other the other key here is, is is with respect to the Huntress. Uh, it's very interesting here. Nightwing." It shows up. we know that the huntress was possessed by Hugh Vile, Marika Tamaki during the while fear state was going on. Marika Tamaki scripted that story where um, the huntress was sort of possessed by the Hugh Vile parasite and she could sort of see s- s- serial killers when they're about to kill. The huntress could almost see through their eyes and and. Apparently that condition that she got, which is, appears to be permanent, it was getting worse and worse, and she had an experience with Nightwing that Nightwing recounts to Batwoman and says, "Yeah, and Huntress actually ended up killing somebody uh, during one of her visions, and she she has a vision that this one particular lowlife was going to kill a woman, and she ended up killing him." And uh, I got some issues. Yeah, with but
0: that. I, I will I will say he was infected with the parasite and the parasite would have killed him anyway. So it's not clear. I mean, yeah, she was beating the crap out of him, but it might've just sped along the parasite or he could have succumbed. It doesn't, it's not outright that she killed him. I will, I will just to play devil's advocate.
1: No, no, no. Fair enough. I I actually, that I'm going to, I'm going to happily go with your interpretation because that was the one thing that bothered me because Nightwing seemed to breeze over the fact that this person was dead. Uh, So I liked, I'll go with what I'll go with your interpretation of that scene. And, and, but, you know, he, here's the hunters and she's experiencing all this in Arkham Tower. And it was almost as if Nightwing was wondering if she, maybe she did, did the go into Arkham Tower as a patient or was she also going undercover? Maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> Nightwing was hoping she'd also get some therapy as well. But it's clear that a lot of the other patients there that, you know, they're, You know, there's one particular guard who is actually a member of the uh, Party Crasher gang. He's hitting on Anna Volshin, and he tries to sexually assault her. She ends up assaulting him, killing him, and killing another guard. And Dr. Ware, he covers it up. He covers it up, the two murders, because Dr. Ware, he wants to get funding by Mayor Nakano. Mayor Nakano hired Dr. Chase Meridian to to investigate Arkham Tower, and if it passes her inspections and gets her approval, then Gotham City will grant $6 million to the funding of Arkham Tower, which Dr. Ware makes clear here in this issue that he intends to abscond with those trust monies, uh, and basically, and then he hints at killing all the inmates. So, because Doctor Ware hates patients, he Doctor Ware, when he grew up, he he, his mother was uh, mentally ill, and as it was revealed in a previous issue, he doesn't think that mentally ill people can be cured. They all deserve to be dead, just like his mother deserved to be dead. And so that's where we're at. And so, and in this issue, uh, one of the patients that ends up, or one of the guards that ends up being killed, who is this uh, Mark Barbaric character, who's actually a party crasher. He ends up assaulting Anna Volshin. He ends up getting attacked by Anna Volshin and killed. His friend ends up going to Dr. Ware at the end saying, Where's my friend? He's disappeared. What did you do with him? And, of course, the big reveal at the end. And, a spoiler alert, uh, this is a big spoiler. It ends up being none other than Psycho Pirate. And... This is a big one for me because, yeah, Psycho Pirate, of course, his real name is Roger Hayden. The last time we saw Psycho Pirate was in the pages of Infinite Frontier, where Darkseid was utilizing Roger Hayden. And here he ends up showing up in the pages of Detective Comics. This is another example. I'm not sure how continuity-wise it seems a little bit wonky to me. Uh, To me, this seems like a downgrade in his powers. I mean, it's to me this this feels like a demotion. If you're gonna you go from being Darkseid's number one uh, mind controller to working for a Doctor Ware at Arkham Tower, manipulating a bunch of Batman's Rogues Gallery seems somewhat of a demotion to me from a storytelling perspective. But uh, having said that, strangely enough, and I'm really gonna I'm curious as to your take on this, Jace, because. I was, I was wondering how Marika Tamaki could say something new about an Arkham Asylum story. What, 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 what new can she possibly say? We've been here a thousand times before. And yet, strangely enough, I really like this turn of events. It explains everything. It makes perfect sense. All the behavior of the inmates, the behavior of the huntress, uh, the behavior of the guards. It makes perfect sense. And knowing Roger Hayden, who himself is a little bit crazy... This just makes sense, and I like this. I like this, and 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 for those and what I also like about it is, and not that I like bringing up Tom King's Batman run because I wasn't a big fan of it, but Tom King or Tom King did have Psycho Pirate involved in the machinations and the mind manipulations of the patients at Arkham Asylum in his story to help Flashpoint Batman use Psycho Pirate to manipulate the minds of. Arkham Asylum patients during Tom King's Batman run leading to the resolution of that storyline, which I know is very divisive. But here, Psychopirate is still black back on the playing field. How did he stay on the playing field? What did, what what has Psycho Pirate been doing since the end of Tom King's Batman run? I'm, I wonder if Marika Tamaki is even concerned about that continuity, how it's going to play out, how she's going to explain that, or if she even cares and this is the DC Omniverse and everything matters and therefore nothing matters. I don't know, but nonetheless... I actually like this development here. I'm intrigued by it. What do you think?
0: It doesn't make any sense. do <laughs> you in the perfect sense? It doesn't make any sense. Um that being said, I love it. Uh, and when I say it doesn't make any sense, you alluded to it, right? <laughs> Darkside's not about to let Psycho Pirate go. How is Psycho Pirate working for Darkseid while well, Darkseid tries to find the crack in uh in all, you know, in, in the uh in the uh Source the wall, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the multiversal crack uh, that migrated from the source wall and that, and now is moving all over the multiverse. Darkside needs psychopower. he's not about to let him go. So having him show up here, which I didn't see it coming, it was completely unexpected, uh, which is rare because a lot of times I'm figuring things out, but I never stopped to try to figure it out. You know, obviously I knew there was something going on that was beyond just the usual drugs, or you know, I thought, well, maybe it's going to be turn out to be magic or but yeah, this makes perfect sense. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Maybe if I had, I would have figured out it was Psycho Pirate. So in that way, the fact that... So the fact that Psycho Pirate is here, continuity-wise, makes no sense. But Rocky's right in that in, for the context of the story and what's going on in the, in the walls of Arkham Tower, this makes perfect sense, and I love it. And the other thing that I love about this, this isn't Doctor Ware. I want to rule all of the underworld uh, of Gotham. I want to be the biggest powerful power broker that you know can, can be the guy that you come to to, to hire a supervillain because they're all under my control because I have Psycho prior to control them in, in the halls of, of Arkham Tower. It's, it's none of that, right? He says it himself. This is a long con. This is about money. Yeah. They're doing this so that Gotham City, Mayor Nakano will write them a big giant check and then poof they will just disappear you know this is like like old school realistic type crime <laughs> that could happen in our world it's a grift yeah and i love that aspect of it instead of it being some big giant scoped s- super villain or or where was um was uh you know traumatized by the things that he went through when he was a kid like we saw the last issue uh and because of that he's become evil and twisted and you know, he wants revenge on superheroes or revenge on the city of Gotham himself or whatever. No, he was always a selfish kid. And and maybe that was influenced by his childhood, but we saw how he stole uh, the, the ATM card of the social worker that was trying to help him. He's just, he's just a bad guy. He's just a greedy, selfish guy who just is doing this for the money. And, and I love that. I love that. That's what Mariko Tamaki is doing here. Um, the art by, uh, by Ivan Reese is, is fantastic. And, and line work is beautiful and detailed. Like he always gives us, I, you know, I've said before, I hope he does the whole thing, uh, you know, cause I just love his art and I want the, the consistency of him on the art the whole time. Um, the, the stuff with Huntress is interesting. Like you alluded to with her still seeing the, the visions because she was infected, uh, infected with the vile parasite. Love that. And I always did take it as, as the guy. Yeah. She was beating on the guy, but he, He was he was succumbing to the parasite at that point anyway. Um, Although, you know, we have seen in the past hunters come pretty damn close to the line of of killing people. But, you know, I'll I'll choose I'll choose that um, that interpretation because you're right. Otherwise, it's problematic because Dick is like he just glosses over it. Well, this guy's dead. But, you know, assuming that the parasite would have would have killed him anyway. But, yeah, there's just a lot to like here. Um, And and again, I said this about last issue. I'll say it again here. You, I read this, and at no point did I ever think, or for a second, miss Bruce or Batman. Like he's not necessary for this story. This is an utterly compelling story with plenty of Bat family uh, members here, uh, and you don't miss the fact that Batman is not in it at all. And that last page, it, it yeah, it got me. I wasn't expecting it, and it got me, and I put a big grin on my face, and I was I was really happy to see it. So, next issue, American Psycho Pirate. So. Yeah, and that's a
1: that's a great name for an issue. I mean, obviously, yeah. off American Psycho, so that's a great yeah. name for a nice tease for a next issue. It's 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 really good, and uh, that's why I gave myself a no prize because I thought, it, I, I I thought to myself, if a meta human was causing the mind control, who who could it possibly be? And uh, when I Googled it, and and out popped the name Psycho Pirate, and I thought. I thought of Tom King's run, and I thought, you know what, maybe after yeah. Tom, we we did, we never did find out what happened to Psycho Pirate after Tom King's run, so maybe Marika Tamaki is going to tell that story. Again, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe she's not going to refer to, uh, to Roger Hayden's experience with Flashpoint Batman, but we do have a, a Flashpoint Paradox comic coming out, and you never know, Marika Tamaki might be thinking outside the box a little bit, so. but Yeah, agreed. Uh, there, there's a backup here, uh, which continues to tell the story of the, the, of the younger character, which I believe is a young Nero, who uh, it tells the story of uh, when he goes to, uh, he ends up in, in I guess, the Wayne, Wayne Manor Orphanage and at a time when Scarecrow is there using his fear gas. And what's interesting is uh, young Robin gets involved, uh, tr- takes them all out. But this young boy ends up, uh, you know, being in favor of uh, Scarecrow. He sort of, uh, Scarecrow sort of befriends this young boy. And this young boy has, we know, has a phobia against Batman, against the Joker. We know that Harley Quinn, when she was still a doctor, still a psychiatrist, she diagnosed this young boy as suffering from an affliction that makes him unable to differentiate between costume characters if that makes any sense. So he couldn't tell the difference between the Joker and the Batman. And uh, accordingly, it's interesting that the end here, when the Scarecrow and this young boy, this young, I'm assuming this is the young Nero, uh, Batman ends up showing up and, and Scarecrow knows that this young boy is already screwed up, but Scarecrow actually intentionally sprays him with his fear spray and says, when you get your sanity back, tell them I did this to you, that you had no choice You'll need more fear gas than I've ever given anyone. If you're to fool them, it will wear off eventually. And he does that so that the kid is not blamed uh, because the, the kid's own actions were intentional. And so that the Scarecrow is helping this kid get away with some juvenile criminal acts that he engaged in while he was working alongside Scarecrow. And um, of course, Batman ends up showing up. And of course, Batman thinks that the young boy's been poisoned and presumably the young boy will be helped, but I'm assuming this is a story that will ultimately lead to this Nero person, or if I'm wrong and this is a different character, whoever this young boy grows up to be is now probably presently a patient in Arkham Tower that maybe will be revealed in one of the future chapters. At least I'm hoping that so that we get some linkages between the backstory here and the story that Marika Tamaki is telling. So I'm hoping that there's that collaboration and that that, uh, the right hand of Marika Tamaki is connecting with the left hand of Matthew Rosenberg, uh, who's writing this backup uh, called House of Gotham, uh, with beautiful art by Fernando Blanco and colors by Jordi Belair.
0: Yeah, I mean, Batman thinks he's poisoned. I mean, in a way, he has been poisoned, right? An overdose of of fear gas. So, yeah, who who he turns out to be? That's still the the big question. Um, so I, I mean, I thought this was a an interesting. Installment of the story. I'm I'm just unclear where it's going now. That the scarecrow has has shown up. Like, what exactly was the scarecrow hoping to accomplish here um, by going to Ween Manor? The other aspect that you didn't mention is we do see that the young red-haired boy. He's hiding out in the in the library where uh, Dick Grayson as Robin pops out of the of the library, and then and then he mentions. I hope the guy whose house this is knew you were coming there trying to play it off that he doesn't know what house he's in. Like that, that line was kind of clunky. Like Robin, you, you operate in Gotham city, you know, that's Wayne Manor, right? Like I get that you're trying to make it seem like you happened upon the house, saw it being attacked and you didn't come from the inside, but that kid saw you come from behind the library books, Mm -hmm. um, behind the bookshelf. So I wonder if that's gonna, gonna show up or, or, play a part of the story at all going that's forward, a, that's a
1: good saying. catch so this kid might grow up knowing some of the secrets of wayne manor yeah so yeah, yeah
0: exactly and then and yeah what what is this super high concentrated overdose of fear gas going to do to this kid we'll see uh there's a second backup um and it's a prelude to mark wade's uh world's finest number one on sale in march um it was interesting because I, I I didn't know, but apparently based on on what we get in this story, this is kind of early times between Batman and Superman. Um, yes, so that's Poison what Ivy
1: said in an interview, it was uh, classic gotcha.
0: times. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Poison Ivy, a Gotham villain, has shown up in um, in Metropolis, and she's assuming Superman's going to show up to take care of her, but actually Batman and Robin show up, and then uh, Metallo shows up and ends up injecting superman's heart with a bunch of red kryptonite which obviously is going to change like red kryptonite for those who don't know every time superman interacts with it it changes him in a different way so we'll see how that's gonna affect it and it's gonna turn him into some kind of monster or whatever and and robin and batman are going to be the ones that have to sort of figure it out so uh it, it did feel very classic um what's what's interesting so dan mora does the line work but it felt a lot less clean to me yeah. than Dan Moore's art usually feels. Yeah. Um, and I, and, I, and it, got, it also got real dark in the colors from Tamra Bonvillan toward the end, which if you're talking about a classic world's finest Superman Batman story, I feel like the color should stay nice and bright. But uh, it has me intrigued. I'm I'm looking forward to, to what uh, Mark Reed's uh, run on it. So we'll see. What'd you think, Rocky?
1: Uh, I really liked it. I liked it. It was just it was great action. It was it, it got it was short, sweet, and to the point. Beautiful. It was a perfect teaser. Uh, there was in, in when you consider it was, it was only eight pages. I mean, it was just it's really well done. It's action packed. Yeah, you know, Mark Wade knows these characters, and you can and he knows. And by the way, that is that is Dick Grayson. That's the Batman. That's Dick Grayson and Superman. Uh, this this is the you know he's going back to the days of old and. I'm so glad he's doing that because that's exactly what I want Mark Wade writing. You know, if everything matters in the DC Omniverse, put, put Mark Wade on, on something like the world's finest. I think, I think he's perfectly suited for that title, I think. And he's. Uh, I would encourage people to listen to his interview with uh, uh, John Citrus on Word Balloon. Uh, and uh he, he talks at length about his passion. Of course everyone knows he's passionate about it. And he talks about the you know, the big thing for Mark Wade was the, the villains. He wanted to set up some compelling villains. For this series, and we got hints of it here with Metallo, and I I, I love the artistic rendition of our of Metallo here. There's a horror element to Metallo by Dan Morat. Dan Morat portrays Metallo here with a, a horrific side, which I think accounts for the darker tone of the colors, and I think it works quite well. Uh, you know, it's 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 not quite the the hope that maybe you might associate with Mark Wade, and you think of DC and Mark Wade, but I like this. This is a darker, uh, more serious Metallo. Uh, I like this as an older Robin, a Dick Grayson Robin, maybe just a couple of years before he becomes Nightwing. I like this. And I like the fact that Batman even gets more aggressive with Poison Ivy. Uh, we're talking about a writer that understands these characters. And in a, in a few short eight pages, uh, it's clear that I think this, this is going to be a series to watch.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, okay, up next we have Peacemaker, Disturbing the Peace. This is a Black Label one-shot. It's from writer Garth Ennis. Art is by Gary Brown, colors by Lee Luffridge, letters by Rob Steen. Uh, here's here's where I'll redeem my, my earlier criticism, not liking the way Lee Luffridge colored the first few pages of Action Comics. His color work in this one is fantastic throughout. Um, it, it's, just, it's, 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 it's on tone the entire time this version of peacemaker that we get from garth ennis is so different than the john cena version that james gunn has given us in the suicide squad movie or the peacemaker tv show which i've seen neither of but obviously i've seen previews and whatnot it's also very different from the peacemaker version that's always been the version that resonated most with me which is the version we got from marvel wolfman's vigilante series back in the 80s because that's the first version of peacemaker that i saw in dc comics and so that one always Stuck with me, and that was more of an insane uh, peacemaker who, you know, would shoot a jaywalker, and and was really just an out and out villain. This one's more heroic, but also more nuanced. And the way Ennis builds the story here um, through the retelling of Peacemaker as he sits on this bench in Arlington Cemetery and talks to this uh, psych- psychologist is is wonderful. Like the complexity and the layering. And just the the matter-of-fact tone, this, the forthrightness, everything that Peacemaker gives us is, is fantastic. Um, you know, I mean, right from his name, Christopher Smith, right? Like, so generic. And the way he's drawn here by Gary Brown, where he just seems like an everyman. And then as the story goes on and we learn more and more about who he is and what he's done, kind of the the complexity and the horror that the psychologist feels as she peels back the layers and, and realizes what he's done, which he's not ashamed of and freely admits to. It's just fascinating. Like it's just, it's a really well nuanced and built story with emotional complexity, complexity of the character. And uh, I thought it was fantastic. When I saw Gary Brown was doing the line work, I was a little worried because uh, the the property that I'm most familiar with his work from is from is uh, is Baby Teeth from Aftershock that uh, the that Donny Cates wrote, and that has to do with a, a girl who gave birth to the Antichrist and they go down to hell and there's all kinds of demons and everything, and that art is much more impressionistic and kind of wild and and out of control, um, and so I was kind of worried that this was going to feel like that, but the art here is is much tighter than that, um, and so it works on a on a good level to sort of give us the military action and give us these snapshots through time of, of Christopher uh, Smith's uh, life and and mission. And I just, again, I thought it was fantastic what it says about who Peacemaker is, what it says about the military complex. Like th- This is just perfect. And obviously with the uh, the TV show being super popular right now, I hope there's a bunch of people that are interested enough to go check out you know, a comic store. And I think that even though this isn't the same version that, uh, that they see on the screen with John Cena, that they can buy into this version and be like, man, comics can be really cool. Like this is a, this is certainly a mature tale and that there's a lot of blood and violence. And I wouldn't go so far as to say murder, maybe justifiable, justifiable homicide. We'll call it that, uh, that this version of Christopher Smith does. But this is this is a great book to have out on the stands for somebody who comes in looking for a peacemaker comic. Again, it's not what they're getting in the TV show, but it's high quality storytelling. This was fantastic. This, I, I sort of was apprehensive to read it until Rocky told me it was much different than the than the TV show. Not because I, I don't think that the John Cena James Gunn version is uh, is valid. But it just—it's not something that I really felt like was going to be to my taste. Um, so then Rocky was like, "No, oh, it's—it's darker." And I read this—this—this this, this comic surprised me more than any comic has, has in a long time in terms of the overall feel and tone of it. I, I thought it was absolutely excellent. So, uh, what do you think, Rocky?
1: I think it was really good. Uh, I'll just I'll, I'll, I'm going to frame my uh, my review this way by saying that this is a far more realistic take given the concept of Peacemaker than the one being portrayed on TV. But at the same time, I admit that the Peacemaker that's being uh, that James Gunn is scripting and writing for the Peacemaker series is probably more amenable to a larger audience uh, because it's it's more of a it's more of a comical take. But yet, James Gunn's version of Peacemaker in the Suicide Squad movie and in the TV series in this HBO streaming service, it's they also get in they delve into Peacemaker's past and he had a very bad upbringing with his father, who was a racist and a white supremacist, and he was his father was a hate monger. And the way peace you can you can, but yet, in on the TV show, Peacemaker still has a good side in him despite the fact that his father is. Is, there hate, is a hate is a monger and a real screwed up person. There's still, a, there's still some angels in the nature of the makeup of the Peacemaker in the TV series. Sort of less so here. This is Garth Ennis sort of saying, hey, look, this guy's not funny. This is not a guy that you want to go and... Garth Ennis is Peacemaker. This, this Christopher Ch- Smith, no, he's screwed up. I mean, his parents killed himself. His parents were screwed up. His he came home from school, and his 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 mom and stepfather had killed themselves. They microwaved his sister, and they put in and they put his other twin sisters in the washing machine. That's what he came home to. He never killed his parents. And then then he uh and then he ends up in foster care. And then uh, his foster fa- his foster father is killed during a bank robbery, and it's robbed by these, these this this Bonnie and Clyde gang called Scooter. Their names are Scooter and Linky. And he ultimately, as a young 10-year-old, he ends up setting them up to get caught and killed by police. He then, seven years later, after many other screwed-up machinations that play with his mind, he ends up joining the army. He rises in the ranks. He ends up going from uh, the army to the Rangers, to the Green Beret, to the SAS, to Delta Force. He gets better and better and better. And the reason why he's talking to the psychiatrist throughout this story that Garth Ennis is excellently scripted is that this psychiatrist... Is is actually there, and he, and she's actually been asked by the FBI to talk with Peacemaker, to to, because they suspect Peacemaker himself is being responsible for the death of so many men in his unit, particularly something called Operation Lasting Silence. The last big mission he was on was called Operation Lasting Silence, and even the name is metaphorical. Lasting silence. Well, what's lasting silence? That's peace. It's peacemaker. And so there, there's metaphors there. So Operation Lasting Silence, a lot of the people he worked with, a lot of his fellow soldiers, end up through extraordinary series of events end up getting killed. Well, it's revealed that the Peacemaker had something to do with it. But all of them who died deserve to die. And Peacemaker simply does it. And And as you said, I mean, the reveal at the end in terms of, why Peacemaker? Why is he called Peacemaker? Why does he view himself like a Peacemaker? That's a central question. In in the James Gunn show in the in, in, in the in the in the in the HBO series Peacemaker, well he he he's he's for peace at any cost. He's just a patriot. He may have been raised by a bigot and a white supremacist, but he's about patriotism, peace at any cost. Well, no, this Peacemaker thinks of peace in a very very different way, about bringing peace to people who are deeply disturbed. And that final scene that you alluded to says quite a bit. And it's interesting that peacemaker. Not once in this entire story does the peacemaker smile. Christopher Smith does not smile once. He's got the square jaw like a Clark Kent, but he doesn't smile. He. This is not a mild mannered person. He. He is. He, he's. He's got very calm and demeanor, but he is he's he it's almost something like you could imagine this peacemaker walking into a room and wiping out an army of of evil people and and his pulse doesn't even his heartbeat doesn't even increase he he's that he's almost dead to the world and yet he does he does have some morals and some principles there, but it's impossible to break through his hard exterior and emotionally it's almost like he's dead to the world and and yet he's very intelligent, but it's a very interesting take by Garth Ennis. This is a very, very hard, hard character, and I'm I'm sort of speculating as I'm talking and I'm remembering the scenes, and and uh, I'm not I'm not gonna I won't spoil it. I know that we're a spoiler podcast, but I mean the final scene with him in that in the cemetery talking to her. There's a reason why that that scene takes place in the cemetery, and. And it goes to the heart of who Peacemaker is and his moniker. And it's a very powerful story. And I think it works very well. Again, I would rather, for, for a TV series, I'm glad we have James Gunn. But for a comic book, for Garth Ennis, this really hits the mark as well.
0: Yeah, 100% agree. Garth Ennis, perfect person to write Peacemaker. And I definitely would read a series. Um, might be kind of tough because he gave us so much here. Uh, so Anyway. Uh, moving on Robin number 10 mother of the demon. This is from writer Joshua Williamson. Roger Cruz is on pencils Norm Ratman does the inks Luis Guerrero on colors Troy Petrie does letters um, Well, wow, I'm really sort of tired of this Robin story at this point. <laughs> it feels like it's really dragging. But uh, anyway, what were your thoughts Rocky? Did you like this one?
1: Uh, just touching you up here Uh I, I thought this was this was kind of a wasted issue for me. I, I, I was disappointed in this issue, uh, but I, I do want to give props to Williamson. I, I think overall, I think for the most part, I've been enjoying his Robin run. He's surprised me more often than not in terms of entertaining me uh, early on. I thought, uh, but this was, this, this feels, this issue in particular feels like a significant miss. Last issue ended, it seemed like Robin was transported to an earlier age where he sort of meet. He sort of meets almost like a younger version of his grandmother, uh ghals mother, and but it ends up to be nothing but uh, uh, nothing but a, halluc- a glorified hallucination taking place in his mind. This entire almost three quarters of the entire issue is wasted, and I mean wasted on. Com- it, we learn nothing of substance. Where he's just in the past, it's this 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 particular issue is called Mother of the Demon, uh, you know. Uh, Roger Cruz is on the pencils. He says, "Good job. the The art's really good." Uh, Norm Rapond on the inks. Louis Guerrero on the colors. Good, good job. But I just, just pointless. It just, all it does, it shows we get the origin of the breakdown of the relationship between Raoul and his mother. The long and the short of it is that Raoul was very close to his mother. His mother died, and when Raoul Gall eventually became the demon and he gained power over the Lazarus pits. Razagal resurrected his mother. But when he resurrected his mother, by the time he got around to resurrecting his mother, uh, his mother had been dead for so long, she was a skeleton, so that when she came back, his mother was essentially insane. Very tropey, been done before, uh, and that's that's why the Mother of Souls is is insane. That's why Razagal's mother, Damian Wayne's grandmother, is insane. Instead of killing his mother, Razal Gal couldn't bring himself to kill his mother, so he banished her and kept her on Lazarus Island. And over the many centuries that uh, the Mother of Souls, because she became the Mother of Souls, she discovered that one way to escape the island was that to have a tournament and bring all the best fighters in the world there every 100 years. Why every 100 years? That's never explained, but <laughs> the souls of dead fighters can be used to power up the Lazarus Pit and feed the demon that indirectly feeds the mother of souls, and uh, that's basically the the origin. So, summarizing it as I just did, maybe I, I guess maybe there was a point to the issue. Oddly enough, when I read it, I, I felt I didn't really. Maybe it's because, as a compliment to Williamson, I'll look at a positive side that it's been such an uh, an enjoyable adrenaline rush to this point. This feels like a this feels like an abrupt stop almost to me. And I'm I'm not really interested in, in Raza Gall's mother. I just I just I just don't care about her. I, I just she's kind of a you know, I, I don't think we need another member of the Raza Gall family, quite frankly. I think we have enough. I like you know, I like Roz, I like Talia, I like Damien. We don't need a grandmother, but that's just me. Uh, now we have Lazarus Island. And in any event, uh, it ends with uh, you know, it ends with Raza Gall sort of, you know, Damien waking up coming out of the trance that he's in after discovering sort of like the origin of the mother of souls and then he he basically once he wakes up uh he realizes that he you know the the demon the older the this older grandmother ros grandma Agal, or whatever her name is she she attacks him but she's handily defeated and razo Agal ends up coming in and now this time he he wants to kill his mother centuries you know why he didn't want to kill his mother 10 centuries ago i don't know but now he's finally decided that i was it was a mistake letting you live mother now i'm going to break in and and i'm going to kill you and and presumably next issue damien is probably going to try to prevent his grandfather from killing his grandmother or his part of me his yeah his grandfather from killing his great grandmother so i don't know i don't uh, at this point i'm not interested in, in grandma agal uh so this was a really big miss for me. The entire, my entire excitement about this series was about the new characters, meeting these new characters, these new fighters, like, like Respawn and, and, uh, uh, all, all those other characters as crazy as they were, I was really interested in getting to know them. And, uh, in particular, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on all the names, but, um, in any event, uh, Ravager and, uh, what's his girlfriend's name there, uh, flatline flatline sorry yes that's it you know the flatline respawn ravager all those characters uh are rko i mean i I, i'm interested in those characters i i didn't like the detour of this issue i didn't enjoy it as much i want to get back and i want to get back into the groove because it feels like a like a it felt like a like a Uh, An adrenaline rush, Team Titan, young, young, almost young Justice slash Team Titans with these new characters, and I want to go back to that and away from talking about his grandmother. For God's sakes, I actually found it a little bit annoying.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, I the only thing I'll add is, I, I don't, I didn't feel like like Roz putting his mother in the Lazarus pits brought her back in a way that made her insane. I feel like it brought. I feel like she was already insane, right? She was already a zealot. She already had these beliefs in the demon, um, and it's kind of explained in the story that it reinforced, like it brought her back, made her even more crazy, right? Like Roz even said he created, and I did appreciate that part of the story that Williamson's getting, where Roz was, you know, his belief was in science, right, which is 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 interesting and is in keeping with the character, and he created the Lazarus pits through science. But his mother, being dead for so long, came back and was like, oh, "I was in the pit and I saw the magic, right?" And so it just it strengthened her her beliefs that she already had, and this idea of uh you know of a demon and and all the world needing to be burnt down to be rebuilt, you know, kind of like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Uh, and so yeah, it just rein, it reinforced that. So I feel like she was already crazy, and and resurrecting her with the Lazarus Piss just made her more crazy. <laughs> At least that's that's what I. That's what I got. But I also agree with you that um, it doesn't make any sense that Roz has been alive for hundreds of years. Oh, well. and, and now is the time that he's going to kill his mother. Like now, now. like she's been in prison on this island all this time. And now is the time all of a sudden when Damien happens to be there. Feels awfully convenient. So yeah. <laughs> uh, as, as far as the art from Roger Cruz, I did really enjoy the art. I thought the art, um, it went really, really well with the colors from Luis Guerrero and the Norm rap. I mean, Norm's a, a fantastic inker. So yeah, I thought the art was maybe the strongest art we had for any, any of the issues so far. Like I, I, I love the art. It was really dynamic and the color work, a lot of greens and, um, uh, that really popped off the page. So, uh, kudos to the art team for sure uh okay up next we have superman 78 number six this is from writer robert venditti wilfredo torres is the artist jordi belair on colors dave lampfear of a larger world on letters this is the end of the brainiac storyline that is set in the richard donner universe of of the superman films and man was this so good like throughout the the series there have been times and panels and moments where I could just see this playing out on a big screen with Christopher Reeve as Superman. (laughs) There are so many moments. There are so many moments in this issue that feel like that, you know, from, from the, uh, from the variant cover to the fight Superman has with Brainiac and and eventually he wins and the uh, kind of the, the robotic suit of armor that Brainiac is wearing explodes and, of course, Brainiac's consciousness is just transferred into another, um, you know, an- android Brainiac body. But then the, his ship is damaged and all the bottled cities are, are set to be destroyed. And there's um, there's a couple of scenes where Superman doesn't even appear on the page. Um, you just see these swooshes of red as he's flying by the uh, the bottled cities. Like, so he'll fly by and some of the bottles are missing. And then he flies by in the other direction and more bottles are missing. And you can just see that playing out on the on the big screen um, with Christopher Reeve playing Superman, like it, it just works so so well. And then the other part, the other aspect, and where I thought it worked really really well was uh, once the uh, Brainiac ship explodes, then the the city of Metropolis, which has been which Brainiac has extracted, right? Because he was going to shrink it down and put it in a bottle as well, and then destroy the Earth. The, the city no longer has the, the the power of Briniac's ship to keep it aloft, and it starts falling back to Earth. And so it's a fantastic scene with Superman. There's several of scenes of, of Superman underneath this big rock, the bedrock of the city of Metropolis, um, and he's trying to hold it up. And Rafredo Torres does a really good job of showing us the you know the the exertion in the face of Superman as he's as he's trying to to hold the city up we get some scenes of of Lois Lane and Perry White and Jimmy Olsen as the the rock is falling. Um, Lex Luthor, of course, being Lex Luthor flying away on his balloons with the bad pun, just like uh, um, Gene Hackman would, would have said, right? Too bad the Metropolis real estate market's about to crash. Wah, wah, (laughs) you know? So, um, and then it, it sort of plays out exactly the way you would expect it to be, but that's what helps you, see it in your mind's eye so well of what we'd see in the movie, right? Like Superman is struggling and this city is still falling at a, at a pretty fast rate. And so when it does hit the ground, you know, it, uh, it, it does get it to land back in the right spot, but it lands with a big war doom, you know, and there's big shock waves and everything that come out. I'm sure some of the buildings were damaged. And then you kind of see the dust start to settle and everybody kind of catches their breath. All the, all the citizens on the street and whatnot kind of pick themselves up start dusting themselves off and they're saying, ah, we, we, we're live. We did it. Superman did it. Um, Jimmy Olsen's happy. I knew he'd save us. And Perry Wade always with the headline, right? Tomorrow's headline, the day the sky stopped falling. Get me a photo, Olsen. Like, again, it's just that cadence and the, you know, the 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 perfect scripting and dialogue that you would see from a movie. And then they're all sort of worried, like thinking, well, Yeah, su- Superman probably sacrificed himself to save us. But then, of course, you know, that's not what actually happened. The ground starts to shake again. And we see Superman fly up through through the uh, you know the bedrock of Metropolis. Yes, he saved them all. Yes, the whole entire city crashed upon him. But he's Superman, and he flies out. And and, and that more than anything might be the scene when he comes you know flying up from from underground, still alive. Like you could just see that. I, I I almost got the same feeling. I knew what feeling that would that would bring me if I was watching it in a theater, and that happened on the big screen with him. Like oh man, I. I want this movie to exist with Christopher Reeve and with Richard Donner having directed it like so much, you know. Just what what might have been if if the producers uh, hadn't had the falling out with Richard Donner and we'd been able to get a, a movie like this. And then there's some great scenes at the end with the follow-up. And again, it's it's very on brand with Christopher Reeve's Clark Kent. Um, you know, the chief is asking him. Uh, Perry White asking him, "So wh- where were you during all this excitement? Oh, a uh, cuckoo clock fell off my wall and and knocked me on the head. All I've got is a nasty lump. And just again, really, just fun, just fun. So uh, I, I really enjoyed this. I'm so glad that it exists. And uh, I, I think if Richard Donner and Christopher Reeve were still with us, I think they'd get a kick out of it. I think Robert Mcdiddy and and the entire creative team did such an admirable job of capturing the tone and feel of the movie. I think they should be very proud of of giving us this story that really honors the legacy of everybody involved with those uh, those first two Superman films. So, yeah, th- this for me was a big win. Yeah,
1: I, I agree. And, and, and that final, the, the final image of Superman in space flying, you can almost see him winking to the camera as he flies away and uh, saying that we'll make our discoveries together and uh this this really is the the the, the admirable you know un, it, it was it never became a movie but you could definitely see this being the ultimate sequel uh to to the superman christopher reeve movies where you know his parents are still alive but in in the bottle city of of Kandor or some portion of Krypton in in bottle city and it's just beautifully well done you know i, I think of that scene in superman returns with uh, brandon Ruth where he's you know he's he's lifting up the that that kryptonite laden block of of landmass and he's flying it into space how much how 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 much i didn't like that storyline and that script for superman returns how much better it would have been had we gotten something like this, where the landmass that Superman is is instead of pushing a landmass into space, he's he's lowering a city like Metropolis back into place, like he does in this comic book. And and as you say, because it's it's so easy for us to imagine, especially those of us who are older and we're beholden to Christopher Reeve, it's very easy to imagine these scenes playing out, and that is a true compliment to writer uh, uh vendetti and, and and torres on the art my, my god i mean the art here is fantastic i mean the callbacks we know exactly who these characters are and actors are uh i mean it's margot kidder it's christopher reeve it's uh, gene hackman oh i mean lex luther i mean lois lane i mean superman i mean carcette i mean uh, the callbacks here the, the feelings of nostalgia when you read this comic it's just it really is a it's it's it's, it's a joy and uh it it, it is very well done It's very well done, and there's no question about it that I hope this sells very well in trade. It's a wonderful tribute to the uh, Alexander Salkind uh, movies and and Christopher Reeve himself, uh, who, let's face it, he was the first one to make us truly believe that a man could fly, and wow, this series, I hope it flies off the sales charts.
0: Yeah, as much as I like the Henry Cavill version, not that I like any of the movies that he's been in, I feel bad for Henry Cavill. I think he could make a great Clark Kent and a great Superman if he he was given some good material to work with instead of the garbage that Zack Snyder's given him. That being said, as much as I like Henry Cavill as an actor, um, to me, live action Superman will always be Christopher Reeve. That's always who I picture in my head. So, Uh, All right, moving on. Next book we're going to talk about, uh, which we've in a way already talked about. Uh, But it's flash number 778 from writer Jeremy Adams. Fernando Passerin and Matt Ryan handle the art for pages uh, 1 through 8, 12 through 14, and 16 through 18. And then we have Brent Peoples on 9 through 11, 15, and 9 through 220. Colors, Jeremy Cox, Peter uh, Pantazis, and Matt Kerms. Letters are by Rob Lee. So Rocky and I did chat with Jeremy Adams. We've mentioned it a couple times. Uh, That interview will be out on Thursday. Uh, and we did talk a little bit about this book already. That's what I mean by the fact that we've already talked about it, but you haven't heard it. Um, so yeah, this was uh, this is a continuing Flash in in Gemworld, and also the story of of what's going on with the twins, Irie and Jay, back in uh, back on Earth, I guess we'll say. So what do you think, Rock? I, I I quite like this.
1: Uh, you know, again, Jeremy Adams continues to have a lot of fun here. One of the things we didn't mention when we reviewed the previous issue, Flash Seven Seventy Seven is that this Maxine Baker, this friend, this best friend of Irie West, Maxine Baker's actually the daughter of Animal Man. Animal Man is Buddy Baker. Buddy Baker and his wife, Ellen, they have a daughter named Maxine Baker. This is Maxine Baker. And for those people who may not be familiar enough with the with the New 52, and uh, I never read a lot of Animal Man in the New 52, so I also had to do my own little bit of research, uh, Maxine Baker was in the New Fifty Two. She ultimately became an avatar of the red, and the red is sort of like the sort of like just like a swamp thing is the avatar of the green, all plant life. The avatar of the red sort of is the 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 avatar of all animal life. And one of the things that you'll notice, and uh, and Jeremy Adams will give, give some clues in the interview that when you when you go back and read issues of of, of Flash Seven Seventy Six, Seventy Seventy Seven, and Seven Seventy Eight, this issue. Keep an eye on the cat that Maxine Baker has because uh, max that that cat is actually or at least back in the day it used to be a member of the Parliament of limbs that that was uh, was there to actually protect Maxine Baker. So in this issue where we have uh, we have Irie West and Maxine Baker ultimately kidnapped by by Mammoth and Shimmer, <coughs> who are old Teen Titans villains, <coughs> and they're working for the calculator and the calculator. Uh, has basically got an algorithm where he through he traces all the blood banks across the world and he can trace the metagene found in blood, and he's sort of collecting i'm getting the impression that the calculator the calculator collects all these little children metahumans with the idea of sort of like selling them on the black market, maybe some quasi human trafficking that's my speculation. And so they're kidnapped. But what what they don't count on, what Mammoth and Shimmer don't count on is young Jay West is spying. He's spying on his sister. (laughs) And so, and he's spying on his sister and Mammoth and Shimmer, they kidnap Maxine and Irie so quickly that he doesn't have enough time to run back into the house and tell his mom, Linda, that, oh, by the way, you know, know, Irie's been kidnapped and Maxine. So he follows them. Now, just to be clear here, Jay and Irie uh, West they both originally had flash powers, but Jay lost his powers and to the to the speed force. So his Jay hasn't had his powers developed yet, but Irie West has. So Irie has a connection to the Speed Force that Jay does not. And the last time that Jay tried to access the Speed Force through his sister, uh through her sister touching him, it almost ended up killing him. And so in uh this issue ultimately has Jay following them to try to rescue them. Meanwhile, Writer Jeremy Adams does a good job, uh, uh working in conjunction with artists uh, Fernando Passer and Matt Ryan and Brent Peebles, who work on various pages, uh, going back and forth between Flash's battle against the Justice League Dark, who are possessed by the power of Eclipso on Gemworld, World, uh, and he's battling them. So Flash and Dark Opal are battling the battling the Justice League Dark that are possessed by Eclipso. Meanwhile, Jay and Irene Maxine are battling. They're battling, uh. Shimmer and, uh, uh sorry, Shimmer and uh, Mammoth in, in on Earth, and what ends up happening is the Flash does a really good job here of essentially he defeats the Justice League Dark, and 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 initially I was sort of surprised that the Flash could defeat Justice League Dark, but I think it's become apparent that he, when Eclipso tries to t- tries to take control of so many people at once, so many metahumans at once. Uh, They're not very effective because Eclipso Eclipso might be able to take control of Justice League Dark, but he doesn't know how to use their powers per se. So just because you can mind control someone, unless you know how to use their powers, you're you're mind controlling them. They're not going to be very effective fighters. And for that reason, I think is one of the reasons why Wally West is able to effectively essentially defeat Justice League Dark or incapacitate them along with the help of Dark Opal. Uh, And... But ultimately, they end up getting caught by, by by, Eclipso anyway. Meanwhile, Jay breaks into the cabin where Mammoth and uh, Shimmer have his sister Irie and Maxine Baker, prisoner. And he has his sister Maxine give him an aspect of the speed force. He utilizes that to great effect, basically takes out Mammoth and, and Shimmer and the calculator as, as well. But when he does that, he has a vision of his father Wally uh, being uh, injured or potentially killed by amethyst, uh, possessed amethyst by Eclipso, and uh, that's essentially how the issue ends. And but there's great dialogue here, uh, the dialogue between Wally West, who maintains his sense of hum- he, he maintains his sense of humor and even his sense of hope, uh, even in the face of battling Eclipso and the, and the Justice League Dark. Eclipso even asks Wally. He goes, "Good Lord, how can you resist me? I mean, I can take control of everyone. What's so special about you, Wally West?" Well, there is something about Wally West. He is literally he is seems to be sort of like this avatar of hope for the DC universe, and I love that, and that's what fans love, and of course, we know that's what writer Jeremy Adams loves. And we, I certainly encourage everyone to catch the interview that we uh, we did with Jeremy Adams, which will be dropping soon after this in uh, is it drop Wednesday uh, Thursday. Thursday yeah Thursday yeah and i thought this was done to to great effect i i really like i i like how the ju- the juxtaposition between the battles on Gemworld and on Earth between between the various players i think it works very well and i this is such a fun comic book such a fun comic book and it's so great to know that it's written by a writer like Jeremy Adams whose uh passion for the
0: characters is matched by the story itself yeah, I agree. Um, all that being said, Wally West is not, you know, my, my favorite Flash, so and I haven't read a lot of Wally stuff, especially the stuff with with Irie and Jay, so uh, I'm enjoying kind of discovering them as, as characters. Uh, yeah, the calculator, how's he here, and he's killed in Deathstruck Incorporated, we mentioned it, we talked about that book first. Uh, not sure how that all lines up, but, like, you can't get more meta than than Wally himself saying, you know, I'm I'm the Avatar of Hope, so... Uh, the other thing that's interesting is what exactly is, is going on here with the calculator and will these storylines line up at some point? Like what's going on with the calculator and why are they stealing these kids? What's going on with EclipsO uh, and dark opal in gem world, could these stories possibly connect at at some point? So we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, the other thing that's, that's fantastic, even though we have multiple artists on this book uh it's really sort of hard to tell who does what i think their styles are are very very uh similar uh and for i think fernando passerin is is not enough people are talking about what a great artist that guy is like his stuff is is fantastic the color work has been bright uh and and really vibrant throughout the jeremy adams run which again i say it all the time but having really bright colors on a superhero book gives it that classic feel right when you have those primary colors It makes it feel so much like a a silver age book with the bright colors popping off the page and that, that works to great effect. So, um, yeah, if you're a fan of Wally West, like you, you, this is a must read. You gotta be reading flash right now because it's really returned to the, the classic feel of of Wally West, um, back in the day. So the, the days of Wally being not even existing, the the Wally that we all knew not even existing in, in the, you know, new 52 uh, DC universe. Uh, even the the Wally who still felt somewhat lost as he was searching for answers when he first came back in the Rebirth era. All that is definitely in the rear view here, and Jeremy Adams is just giving us solid Wally West flash stories. Uh, All right, up next we have Teen Titans Academy number 11. This is from writer Tim Sheridan. Rafa Sandoval and Jordi Tarragona handled the art for pages 1 through 15. And then Brent Peebles, who apparently was just the fill-in guy for this month, Oh, we can't finish, let's give it to Brent. Uh, he did pages 16 through 22. Uh, and then we have colors on the Rafa Sandoval pages by Alex Sinclair. And, and then Jeremiah Skipper does the Brent Peebles pages uh, with an assist from Matt Herms and then Rob Lee on letters. So uh, a, lot, a lot of uh, people on the creative team for this one. Um, I will say one thing that bothered me right off the bat, Rocky may have the same complaint, you know we've talked for, first of all we said before this even started with the whole red x mystery don't drag this out too long don't make us you know don't and if you if you're not going to tell us for a while don't shove it in our face every issue we don't know who red x is we don't know who red x is right here on the cover of this one red x revealed well guess what sports fans as i suspected we don't find out who red x is in this issue this pisses me off like yeah. I, I, I sort of don't care anymore. I've said that before. I don't care anymore. Stop shoving it down my throat. Stop yeah. dragging this thing out. And then certainly don't tell me you're gonna reveal it when you don't. Like what what what's going on? We've had these yeah. these covers before where oh the mystery of Red X solved. No. No, it hasn't been two years yet, so they gotta keep it up. Like do you think like DC editorial, honestly, do you think there's anybody out there who's picking up Teen Titans just to find out who Red X is. Uh, I really don't want to buy Teen Titans, but I got to know who Red X is. So let me go ahead and buy it again. Oh, look, this one says Red X revealed. Like if I would never buy another DC comic, if I was buying this just to find out who Red X is and it says Red X revealed on the cover, I'd never buy another DC comic. Like I fully expect to hear people on social media bitching about this is, this is not okay. This is total bait and switch. It's not okay. If you want to keep it a mystery and you don't want to tell Tim Sheridan's not ready to reveal it. Fine. Drag it out as long as you want. That's your prerogative. I think it makes for a terrible story, but that's your prerogative DC, but don't put on the cover that the mystery has been resolved and Red X stands revealed when he's not, we do not get a name. We do not even see him without his mask on. So stop it. Just stop it. That being said, the actual story inside that we do get is pretty interesting. You know, we we get a resolution with, you know, with Dane and how he's been prophesied to to bring about the Armageddon. We're finally like off script from what uh, Raven has seen in her visions of what the future might actually be. We finally get uh, a resolution to the Rock of Eternity, which has been, you know, stuck down in in hell with Neuron taking advantage. uh, And the way that, the uh the titans and and everybody works and the students work together to make that happen is really cool with some great visuals by um uh, by Rafa Sandoval and I, I do wish that we'd gotten you know Rafa Sandoval art throughout not that not that the Brett People's art isn't isn't good and it does come in the second half of the book where things kind of the, the main action has already happened and so it does uh it does make sense. I I can't really get used to seeing black Adam with with white hair which is which is kind of interesting. The way they take Shazam off the playing field though is is weird because I can't think that he's gonna be gone forever, so basically what happens is they they sort of trick the the powers that be um that are coming in to take Dane and have him sort of hatch and have the these you know four horsemen of the apocalypse come out they take the energy that's going to be uh that's that's going to hatch. And, and or activate Dane or however you want to put it. And they actually channel that down into hell, into the Rock of Eternity, which gives enough power um, to uh, Billy Batson, who's down there to then raise the Rock of Eternity out and get it out from hell, get it out from under the clutches of Neron. So again, like a, a really cool a plot point, really cool resolution uh, that Tim Sheridan uh, came up with. But now that the, the these four horsemen who were going to kind of sh- uh, usher in the end times are, are trapped within that rock. Now, Black Adam and, uh, and Shazam are apparently going to have to go guard it for all time, along with, with Dane. They're, all three of them are going to have to live inside the Rock of Eternity and make sure that these four horsemen don't actually break out. Well, we know that DC Comics is not going to take Shazam off you know, for all time, and this is sort of a different version of Black Adam, than the one that we see in Justice League, so it's, again, it's not clear what's going on continuity wise. But I, I thought it was an, an elegant solution to, to the problem, um, and it does finally bring to a close a lot of the uh, the storylines and the threads that have been going on in this book since the beginning. So, what's going to happen next? I'm not really sure because the whole academy blows up at the end of this story. Um, and yeah, we still don't know who Red X is, so that—that's a storyline that apparently is going to keep keep on going, uh, which is super annoying. But uh, you know, other than that, which that cover, which again, if, change the cover, and I would, I would actually recommend this, but I can't in good conscience recommend it be, just because of that bait and switch on the cover. But that being said, I think that if you have been reading this and you've been into the story. I think you probably probably enjoy this one because it, it does fine. Because I've complained in the past about some of these storylines just taking too long to, to resolve themselves. At least we finally got the end of some of these storylines. And, and ones I didn't expect. Like, I didn't expect to have, like, maybe we get the end of the Dane storyline with him being this person that's responsible for Armageddon and the end of the world. Maybe we get that resolved. I didn't expect a resolution to the Rock of Eternity Stuck in Hell storyline. And the other thing that is really positive about it is it this cuts it off and separates it from the future state stuff now. Like we can, okay, that future state future, not going to happen now. Raven told us the, that very thing in this issue. Like it's, she, it's off script now. They've changed the future. So we never have to refer to that Teen Titans future state story ever again. Not that they won't, don't get me wrong. They'll bring it up because they're DC and they do that. Um, but in my mind, I can close the door on that. So uh, what were your thoughts on this one, Rocky?
1: Wow. Well, um, you are uh, way too kind on this, uh, in my opinion. I, 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 I can say in the most diplomatic manner I can, I did not like this at all. I, I am completely confused. I, I read this three times and I, I, I refuse to read it a fourth. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand this. At one point, the rest of the Shazam family shows up, says Shazam, and we don't see them. We don't know what happened to them. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's true. What, what happened? What What was the point of them showing up, and saying Shazam? Why did they show up? It makes no sense. I I, I, don't, I don't I don't I don't I don't even understand the resolution of this. It doesn't make any sense. I I don't understand this. They, I I thought they were worried about the unkindness, but no, like, are they worried about the four horsemen of apocalypse, or are they worried about the unkindness? I don't know. Uh, I I don't know how does how does anything that happened in this issue prevent the timeline from not occurring that happened in future state none of that was explained none of it was we were just told that oh i guess it doesn't matter why because raven said so raven the one that's going to become the unkindness are you serious i i, I mean honestly i'm trying to remember a a uh, a uh, 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 storyline that that has gone on this long and then has been this badly put together. And I, I can't think of one in memory. It's been a long time. This is, um, I don't, this worries the hell out of me. I, you know, I know Jeremy Adams is really good friends with Tim Sheridan. I wish Tim Sheridan would ask Jeremy Adams for advice on how to write a story. Because he needs to. Uh, this is a mess. Not only that. Uh, I, I laughed out loud at the end here when, when, when Shazam actually says to Teen Titans Academy was the absolutely the right thing to do. There's so many kids that need a place. Like, I mean, are you serious? You possess the wisdom of a Solomon, and you would recommend to anybody to send your kid to Teen Titans Academy where there's been multiple murders taking place, kidnappings, extortions, Amanda Waller, government of corruption. You're going to send them to Teen Titans Academy? Why? I mean, what is it about Teen Titans Academy? All the teachers have secret identities, most of them. They don't talk about it. The children have secret identities. You don't really know who your friends are. Everybody betrays everyone. I mean, there's what is good about Teen Titans Academy? I mean, there there's literally nothing good. Uh, uh nothing good. What about what about the punishment for the children that that, that bullied Miguel? What what I I, I mean, I, all of this, I, I just don't understand this. And then Red X, don't give me started on Red X. What the hell? What's up with Red X here? I don't understand this. First of all, is there two Red X's? There, there seem to be two Red X's at the beginning of this. There's an older one, and there's a mentor. Somebody's mentoring Red X, and then Red X, Red X at the beginning of this issue talked about stopping Raven and the unkindness, which is a noble cause, and then proceeds to try to destroy Titans Tower. What sense does that make? I, I don't... What sense does that make? And and how how would they know? If nobody knows who Red X is, how, how can Red X suddenly draw, draw a bunch of superpowers? Does Red X have the power to to draw lightning down into Teen Titans Tower? And how did the Titans know he was going to do that to suddenly... And how did they move the, the, the Rock of Eternity there to begin with in order to benefit from the lightning to power up the Rock of Eternity to somehow allow the Marvel family to transform, which we never saw transform anyway, because they have nothing to do with the story except for one panel. This is this is this is since Future State. This is the worst Future State storyline by far. This has, this is, uh I agree with you. I guess we get an ending here. I don't the ending doesn't make sense. You'll never convince me that it does. This is awful. Tim Sheridan, just move on. You're not good enough to finish this. Let, let's just end this. I will never understand this dog's breakfast of a story. Let's just move on with a different writer moving this moving this entire franchise forward. This is an unmitigated disaster. I challenge anyone to tell me what the hell is going on here because this doesn't make sense to me. and And I am frustrated and I am pissed off and I am ranting, but this is a dog's breakfast. This is an absolute dog's breakfast and I'm just going to leave it at that.
0: So you didn't like it. No, I didn't like it. Sorry, man. I,
1: I probably <laughs> should have toned it down a bit there,
0: but like, I, I'm sorry. But this no, I did, guy I made me I could see your body language when I was talking about it. I was like, oh, Rocky does not like this. Oh. Uh, what I will say, what I will say in in defense of Tim Sheridan, I mean, I get a lot of what you're saying, and I, I, I'm making a lot of assumptions in the story. I'm I'm just trying to go with the flow. Um, and we talked about this when Tim Sheridan did his future state teen Titan stuff. And we, we talked about how the ideas are good. I think they're too big for the amount of space. They're too big for comics. Got to remember this guy's coming from animation. And I, I think that's the same problem here. You know, why, like yes. why do why does the rest of the Shazam family show up? Well, because they haven't had Shazam powers because Billy's been gone. So Billy's back. Hey, they get their Shazam powers back. Why don't they, they show get to show up again in the story. Well, cause there's not enough space, yes. you know, like, you're right. He does need to ask Jeremy Adams for a bite because he's, his story is too big. He needs to learn to, to cut down on scope or, or yeah, you know, he's a... got to fit it in the amount of pages, the real estate that he has. And he, he hasn't learned that, that lesson. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be mind if Teen Titans Academy went away, but just purely for the fact that I don't have to hear any more about Red X. Anyway, let's move on uh, from yes. that, that comic that we both loved dearly and will we'll, we'll hold a place of honor in our collections. Uh, Task Force Z, number four. God, we're only on issue four of this series? Like, okay, here, here, here's a great example of how to do it right, right, with Matthew Rosenberg. In four issues of Task Force Z, I feel like I've gotten so much more of, uh, of a story and understand the narrative, and and it's like a third of the number of issues. So it's written by Matthew Rosenberg, Eddie Barrows and Kiernan McCown on pencils. Iber Ferreira and Dexter Vines on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Uh, Yeah, I thought this was fantastic. Last issue, as kind of a cliffhanger, we found out that Crispin, this Crispin, who's the head of Task Force Z, turns out to be Two-Face. So what'd you think, Rock?
1: Uh, you you know, actually, I, I didn't mind this issue, but I did find it to be kind of filler. I I actually question, I openly question uh, the characterization of uh, Harvey Dent here. Uh, he I Harvey Dent seems to be surprised that uh, Red Hood is is doubting him and is holding him to task uh, as if you know I gotta wonder. Well, of course he is your Two Face.
0: I uh, I don't well understand I don't know, he, but he's not. But he's not. He's Harvey Dent. You gotta remember they are two different people. Well no, I, I, well, no. Well, no. Let me just.
1: Fair enough. I, I know where. I, I think I know where you're going with this. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But my point is, is that what's established here is that apparently the government or Amanda Waller and the continuity here is wonky because Amanda Waller in the in the Suicide Squad series she's a wanted fugitive on Earth Designate Zero, Earth Prime. She's a wanted fugitive, and so. But here she's sort of in charge of playing two suicides two new potential task forces against each other, this task force Z, and there's another task force apparently, and they're playing off against each other, and one of them is run by by Two-Face, and he ends up confronting Amanda Waller, and Amanda Waller tells him he's cutting his funding because of uh, all the the gong Show machinations that have been going on in the previous issues, and um, again, it's, I mean, it, it, Again, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting at at the same time. It's like, I'm not really sure. Again, I'm not really sure what the point is. Uh, Harvey Harvey Dent seems to be sort of arrogant about it. He seems to be of the, of the notion that, well, I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, I offer a better deal than, you know, because if you work for me, you're, you, you stand a good chance of, you know, I'll somehow it's a better deal than if you work for the suicide squad. You know, I'm not going to b- have a explosive planted in your head and there's a light at the end of the tunnel and there's there's no indications of that at all. I mean, the cruelty that was shown to Bane, the cruelty that was shown to Arkham Knight, it's all bullshit. I don't I don't buy any of this crap that Harvey Dent's saying for one second. All the cruelty we've seen in the first few issues. So, now that's actually a compliment to the narrative because I think that Matthew Rosenberg's done a good job here of making me call bullshit on Harvey Dent and that's good that's good storytelling because it's gotten me emotional it's making me rant so that's good that's a compliment all right but uh, I'm I'm wondering what uh, I'm just wondering what the end game in here is here because uh you know like with Bloom I mean Bloom seems to be ha- having his own agenda uh Deadshot's walking around I mean it, it, to me it's like who's in control of the ship here I mean Harvey Dent doesn't seem to have a good handle on his characters he's he seems to have a handwritten note from the government that he shows that he's i mean you're i mean if you're gonna prove that you're approved by the government you're gonna show a handwritten note to to red hood of all people and say no really um I can do whatever I want to you here's here's my permission it's like seriously i mean <laughs> it's like I mean, and then of course you know Harvey Dent. He's he's like me, sipping scotch right now. is explaining this to to Red Hood, and he's like, and he's wondering if Red Hood hits him in the face. Uh, anyways, I, I found it a little bit comical. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, at least I guess at least with Harvey Dent, unlike Amanda Waller, at least you know he's two faced. With Amanda Waller, she doesn't look two faced. Harvey Dent, at least he comes across it honestly. <laughs> so so, but in any event, I. Like I said, it's, it's perfectly in keeping with the narrative. It's perfectly in keeping with the machinations you expect from government bullshit, government conspiracy, Task Force Z, Task Force X, Amanda Waller. I'm really curious as to your comments about Amanda Waller showing up. I, I do think that the continuity is a little wonky here. This must have taken place prior to some of the events in Suicide Squad. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, I, it's interesting that at the end, you know, it, it's, Red Hood is actually working with Batman. Batman wants to take him off the playing field. Red Hood tells Batman that Harvey Dent's in charge of this task force Z, and for some reason, this didn't—it didn't work for me. Matthew Rosenberg, that the the the, the characterize the way ta- Jason Hood and and Batman came to came to blows. That you know Jason Hood resents Batman, and he he wants to be able to stay on and make his own choices, and Batman wanting to pull him out and. Seemed a little bit forced that way. Although I guess Hood, Jason Hood and Batman never get along anyway. So I, whatever, I'll buy that. But I didn't quite buy the, the actual reasoning in the argument. It seemed like a bunch of nonsense to me. But um, I don't know how Two-Face can blackmail Jason Todd further by sending him to jail because he's got some, I guess he's got something on Jason Todd. But if I would think with Bruce Wayne's resources, he'd be able to counter, counter that. But maybe he can't. I, I, I'm not really sure. But in any event... I mean, I guess I'm having fun here. the The more, the most fun aspect I had is at the end, where you got you got these two task forces. Basically, it's almost like they're both being played by Amanda Waller. It's like, it's like, it's almost as if Amanda Waller task force, the government, is created two competing organization, two competing task force, and 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 the winner gets all the best contracts. It's it's really odd. I'm I'm not sure. Did I interpret that right or? I, I don't know, man. I'm, uh, this thing was a little bit confusing to me. I had fun with it, but I, I also got a little frustrated reading it.
0: Yeah. I didn't find it uh, to be confusing. I, In terms of, of Harvey, I sort of, I sort of felt like he's trying to play on the relationship that he's has, has with Bruce. You know, like if this were Batman standing across from Harvey, yeah, Batman wouldn't trust him, but he might trust him more than, than Jason hood does. So if it goes to anything, it would go to not, a, I wouldn't call it a mischaracterization. I might call it ego on the, on the part of Harvey Dent to say to Jason Todd, what he's trying to say, like, no, I, I'm doing good here. I think, I think that Harvey Dent truly believes that. Right. And that might be a product of the fact that his other half has been two faced and has done horrific things over the years that, yeah, he can maybe, uh, act with sort of callous cruelty to the members of task force Z. But in his mind, Hey man, at least they're alive again. How how cruel am I really being if you know Bane gets his leg ripped off or whatever? At least he's still alive. The alternative is he's he's dead, and it's no long lasting damage, right? Because we can always resurrect him with the uh you know the Lazarus pills or Lazarus resin or whatever. Um so I, I didn't I didn't mind that. I didn't find it to be out of out of the realm of possibility. Um and it does seem like Mr. Bloom is up to something that doesn't really jive with the other uh, stuff that's going on with task force. Z. definitely seems like he's sort of uh, has his own agenda, which again, I think is very on brand for, for that character. So I, I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I do find, did find it interesting that because we, we talked at the very beginning, how it didn't, even though it was red hood, even though it was Jason Todd, him going along with leading a, a team of dead, Batman villains just seemed like even a step too far for Jason Todd, and then of course come to find out, well, Batman put him up to it all along, um, or at least that's Batman's take. Jason, on the other hand, is saying, you know, well, it's his own choice, and that's he, he wanted to do it. Basically, there's still that that dynamic. Um, so, you know, when Batman and, and Jason Todd are talking about it, it's like, uh, it, you know, I, Batman's like, I was right yeah yes and no it is Dent, but it's complicated it's not necessarily you know what you thought it was batman doesn't really want to hear it he's saying okay we've got the information that you got we needed you know the the confirmation that it was dent now i'll shut it down and jason todd's like well no i want to see this through i'm pulling you out i don't work for you so I, i think that dynamic matthew rosenberg really nails it the dynamic between jason uh jason and bruce so that really works on a a lot of levels for me as far as amanda waller showing up yeah i mean oh matthew rosenberg i was such a fan why do you have to put amanda waller in it i mean it makes sense it's task force z she's you know high level government operative of course she's the one that that signed off on this experiment for task force z and now she's pulling the plug on it it completely doesn't line up continuity wise. You're right about that. Um, because yeah, she's, she doesn't have any authority right now. The government is after her because of what she's trying to do to, and taking over earth three. Um, but the dynamic, the dynamic between her and, and, uh, and Harvey, I thought was, was interesting as well. Um, because Harvey is calling her on her, on her crap, which I, which I really enjoy. Right. It's like, Oh, what you've done is so morally reprehensible. And and Harvey's like, you're, you are calling what we did morally wrong. Is is that a joke? Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, Amanda Waller, you are scum, complete scum. (laughs) I I, I equate you with Two Face. You're just as bad as he is. So I don't know what kind of high ground, you know, she's on. Um, And yeah, I, I just get her, get her out of my comics, get her gone. There's no one I dislike more in comics these days than Amanda Waller, 100%. Not I'll even take the Joker over Amanda Waller at this point. So, but it but it, it did make for an interesting interaction which I enjoyed. And then you're right, at the end, you know, we find out there's a third sister, we find out there's another uh there's another task force. I don't know what this one will be. Task Force Y maybe. Um but it it made for uh some interesting dialogue when we when we get them calling it in right they're calling in like what's going on over there well there's another team there what team well it's a it's red hood some guy dressed like a bat or some guy dressed like a a bat monster dead shots corpse and the skeleton from that singing christmas movie i just loved it right like clearly referencing uh nightmare before christmas because that is sort of what uh, mr bloom looks like um and then when we see that team we've got looks like solomon grundy um and he's really the only one that i i recognize i feel like i should recognize maybe that one is supposed to be zaz i do kind of see some scars there um but not sure who the other looks almost like a female scarecrow the guy in the middle looks familiar um he's got like a gun for a hand but not sure and then some like reptilian looking guy so looks like we're going to have a three-way dance here between um these different factions whoever is guarding the warehouse uh with uh what did she say her name was Celia yeah uh, and her forces and task forces E and then this new this new group that I'm assuming was working for Waller uh the the, yeah. the third team that she mentioned to uh to Harvey Dent although when he asked about it she's like it's none of your business so
1: yeah it's um, that doc- Dr. Celia Shelley and then her sisters are Dr. Amelia Shelley and Dr. Delia Shelley and I guess yeah. I don't know if they're sisters triplets, or clones apparently
0: or clones or something yeah yeah I yeah. don't I don't know but uh
1: Interesting. Uh, it bothers me that as a longtime DC reader that I don't know who the characters are at the end. I know that Solomon Grundy is an easy recognize. Is that, yep. is that supposed to be like, is that supposed to be like KG Beast or something? Or?
0: Oh, KG Beast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. I uh, think that is who that is. Yeah. I
1: don't know. Is that the other one? Is that... Uh, Maybe uh, Zaz with the yeah yeah
0: 70. I think it, yeah I think that's Zaz. The thing about it about if it's KGBs, he should be big, like he should be bigger. KGBs is a pretty big guy. He's closer to Solomon and yeah, size. Than, maybe it's not yeah.
1: KGBs. I'm I'm just guessing, and I I don't know if the other one. It's that I don't know. I I just don't know who the other two are. The one almost looks like a female scarecrow, but I don't know. Yeah, who yep. that would be. But uh, in any event, it's it's interesting. You know, it's it's yeah. Know,
0: yeah, it's fun. I'm enjoying the series.
1: Um, oh, I am too. I am too. I'm, I'm. you know, I'm just, you know, I'm I'm. I'm just venting. I'm I'm having fun with it. I'm having fun with it. I'm just, uh, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's all Speaking good. Speaking of
0: fun, uh, Robin, Superman and Robin. Special number one from Peter J. Tomasi. Victor Bogdanovic does the pencils. Daniel Enriquez, Scott Hanna, and Victor Bogdanovic, as well as Matt Santarelli on inks. Ivan Placencia and Matt Herms on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. I will say having all these different anchors on Vic Bogdanovic made for a little bit uneven art. It's not terrible, but it's not up to the usual standards that I'm, I'm used to seeing from Victor Bogdanovic. and I have some of his original art hanging on my wall. So I definitely know how clean his style normally is. This isn't as clean, uh, but this is the first time we're getting Peter J. Tomasi writing a super son's story since John Kent has been aged up. And in case you are worried that he wouldn't still be able to bring out the playful banter between Damien and John Kent. You don't have to worry. It still works. Do I, do I like it as well with the new dynamic of John Kent being the older of the two? No, I, I like, I like the old version where John Kent is still younger than Damien better. That's not to say this doesn't work. That's not to say that there's not tons of great jokes and tons of great interaction. And, and it's still a whole heck of a lot of fun. Um, you know, there's, there's puns, there's just, I mean, the interaction, and this is what made super Sun so much fun and why so many people were mad when DC aged up John Kent, because the interaction between these two and, and the dialogue, it felt so authentic, like, like the, the way two guy friends at that age would talk to each other, you know, giving each other a bad time and making fun of each other and and whatever, like it, it it totally works on all those levels. So it does still work, but it uh, doesn't work as well. No, I don't, I I don't think it does. Um, But the good thing is it's not like DC has to stop telling those stories from the previous continuity, because we are still getting a a super sons digital comic written by Tomasi that, um, you know, that still gives us that, that version of the, of the characters. So, uh, but it's right from the start when, when Damien shows up and, and kind of scares John, he's like, When are you gonna stop doing that? He's like, How about never? Does never work for you? Okay. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So yeah, yeah plenty, plenty of fun here. And and even though the, the art is a little inconsistent, and again, it's the same penciler throughout, so it's not wildly inconsistent, but but you can if you're looking for it, you can tell the difference between the different styles of the inkers and what they they bring to the art in a in a lot of ways. So I had a lot of fun with this. I thought it was a lot of fun. And it's when Damien's my favorite to read because I'm not the biggest Damien fan. But when you put him together with John Kent, for some reason, that's just when he's he's the least annoying in my mind. Um, so yeah, I I really, really enjoyed this. What do you think, Rocky?
1: Well, this is a de facto sequel to the Dinosaur Island storyline that was in Superman yep. issues eight to nine and the Superman special, which is, I think for for a lot of us, that that was a really that was the quintessential, quintessential uh, storyline for like between Superman and his son John. It's one of the better Superman Kal El John uh, John Kent line, uh, sto- stories, and I, I that's one of my, my favorite. Um, you know, uh, Peter Tomas here to his credit, he does the best he can with what he has to work with because these are older characters. I'll be blunt: this isn't Super Sons to me. I don't call them Super Sons. These are this is a this is an adult. This is an 18-year-old Superman, and this is uh, 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 an older Damien. This isn't isn't the same, Uh, not to me. Also, uh, there's a huge continuity glitch here. Huge continuity, or maybe not a continuity glitch, but a revelation. Huge revelation that uh, I I think is going (laughs) to... We were wrong. All the time we said that John Kent was aged up seven years. Apparently not. He was aged up eight years. He was aged up. Lois Lane makes it clear we lost eight. We lost eight years of your life, she says. You went, you left ten years old. You came back at eighteen, so that's eight years. So it wasn't seventeen. So he came back an adult. So now we can maybe pass that off as maybe just a minor little glitch in the dialogue of the story. I don't think it is. Uh, kudos to Peter Tomasi for having a conversation between Lois we finally get some acknowledgement other than we got a passing acknowledgement by bendis by his parents that who would obviously your son your kid is suddenly 10 is now 17 years old now suddenly the comment is no it was 10 it's actually it's 18 years old now so which is it i don't know pick your story but so now he he left so literally now if you follow the logic of this story he he left a 10 year old boy and he came back an adult we we've been robbed of the entire teenage life of John Kent. But that doesn't make sense because he was a superboy. He was a teenager because he inspired the creation of the Legion of Superheroes in Bendis' run. So that doesn't make sense. So there's a little continuity glitch here. I say that because, frankly, it really annoys me. It really annoys me. And I'm wondering why that is. That has to be intentional. It has to be intentional because he was 10. If you say he's 10 and he's 17 years old, then you can justify Superboy because he's 17, inspiring the creation of the Legion of Superheroes. But now he comes back and he was 18 years old when he came back. So he came back as an adult. That is significant. And I can't underscore that enough. Now, maybe you could say, I'm just a DC fan. I need to relax. It's not a big deal. Well, just think about it. Just, you know, sit back and sort of think about it for for a bit. And you realize... That was so then when he came back, was he was he a man when he came back? He wasn't a teenager when he came back because I can I remember all those storylines when he came back. He was definitely a teenager. He was a super boy. He was called Super Boy. It was John. Kent, I don't think super- it matters.
0: I, I don't really. I mean, just because we arbitrarily say eighteen means you're a man and seventeen you're still a kid, just because yeah. that's the arbitrary legal line. I don't think it matters. Bottom line is whether it's seven years or eight years, it was a mistake. People don't like it, so I. I, I don't really think it, I don't really think it I get it. it. I,
1: got, I got to move along. I got to move along, see my therapist. I get it. I know. Every <laughs> now and then I, 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 I regress and I, I need a good bitch slap. So thank you for giving that to me. But in any event, uh, but having said that, uh, as much as that bothered me, the rest of the story w- was was fun. It was uh, Peter Tomasi's in fine form. Uh, these were the characters, the older versions of the characters that I know and love. This was done. I, I don't like the title. I don't like it being called Superman and Robin. I don't know why they can't call it. Why can't they still call it Super Sons? They're older. Why can't you still call it Super Sons? Uh, well, obviously, I have, I have a sneaking suspicion it's because of sales and marketing. But these are Super Sons. They even, I mean, Super, Superman, John Kent, even refers to both of them as Super Sons uh, at the end. Why not mm-hmm. why isn't this series called Super Sons? You can still be Super Sons and be adults. Why can't you call yourself Super Sons? Wouldn't that make the most sense? Wouldn't that be the most pleasing to fans? What are you calling this Superman and Robin for? You want to create brand confusion? This is ridiculous. I mean, again, it's just it's another example in my view of not connecting the dots, not thinking it through, a bad editorial decision, and frankly, I think it's a bad marketing decision long term. Again, that's just me. Story-wise, uh kudos to peter tomasi he's done a great job i was entertained nice call back we got some nazis in here we got the fortress of solitude we got some good moments with lois lane i liked it peter bagdanovich on the art fantastic uh, i enjoyed it i got nothing really to complain about this story thank you peter tomasi for giving a nice call back here but i just needed to get that little rant and vent out and you know i feel better now
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i get i get what you're saying and it's annoying. annoying, It is annoying and. I mean, I a hundred percent would believe that editorial would come back and maybe he said seven years and say, you know what? He's in the the title is Superman, son of Kal-El, Superman, son of Kal-El now. So can we make him 18? Let's make him 18. Yeah. It's dumb. It's not, it's unnecessary, but aging him up was unnecessary. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Next up, we have human target. Number four, written from, uh, by Tom King, Greg Smallwood handles the art, including the colors, Clayton Cowell on letters wow is this just such a gorgeous comic to look at and it's the little things it's the little things um ice has never looked better she just looks so gorgeous and beautiful the art is so soft the little nuances in the art that beautiful just, comic. yeah it's just fantastic gorgeous so uh christopher chance who's been poisoned he was he was on the job he was um disguised as Lex Luthor and somebody poisoned him and now he's trying to, to solve his own murder before he actually dies. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if we come to come to find out that he was the target all along, not Lex Luthor, but he is going under the assumption that somebody was trying to kill Luthor and accidentally has killed him. This with the slow acting poison, it's going to take seven days to kill him. So there's been some hints that it's somebody from Justice League International. They've been going around talking to different members of Justice League International, now it's this issue. It happens to be Ted Kord that they're talking to Blue Beetle. For whatever reason, Ice was one of the first persons that he talked to. You know, in the story we're told, it's because of the history that Lex Luthor and and Ice have, in terms of um, Luther having you know been partly responsible for her being resurrected and then being like this sex slave to some crazy alien guy. Um, and there's been hints from Christopher Chance that he believes that Ice may be the one that has killed him, but. For whatever reason, maybe because she's so beautiful and charming, and he's only got six days to live, why wouldn't he want to spend it in the company of a beautiful woman? She's kind of uh, coming along with him on the the investigation. So yeah, they're they're talking to Ted Cord in this issue, and again, the little nuances in the art are what's so fantastic. So while they're talking to Ted Cord in his office, he gets a call and it says there's uh, there's a bank robbery going on in Utah. There's hostages, blah blah blah, whatever. So Cord apologizes. Hey, I can't. Um, you know, I can I can't talk. But you guys can come. Can come with me, and you know, we can talk on the way. And they they go through Ted Cord's executive washroom, into this sort of tunnel type area that leads to the bug, and he strips naked. Like Ted Cord strips naked, uh, and it's fantastic. Before he then puts on his costume. And there's one thing that I noticed that again, it's it's the little things that Greg Smallwood is putting into the art you see the the panel where he's standing there naked and there's a, um, a very appropriately placed like robotic arm that, you know, hides his (laughs) butt or whatever. But in that same panel, you see Christopher chance, like discreetly, like he's got one hand up, like last thing he wants to see is Ted court naked. You know, it's just a little thing like that, that uh, enhances the storytelling uh, that Tom King is doing uh, with, you know, Greg Smallwood is, is uh, really enhancing. So, uh, it, it's fantastic. I love the story. Uh, basically, throughout this conversation, throughout this day, Ted Cord is uh, explaining why he could hundred percent see himself as a a suspect, and he doesn't really have an alibi other than I am a good guy and and killing people is wrong. So I wouldn't completely cross him off the list yet. You know, I think this is a story that's out of continuity, so. Um, but do I think it's Ted Cord? No, I don't. But what what is interesting is really what the story ultimately says about ICE, because throughout this this day where Ted Cord and ICE are going and handling one emergency after the other, because it was supposed to just be go and stop these bank robbers. And then it's a bear is loose. And then it's some kid who hacked into a sub. And then it's some aliens that are attacking humans or whatnot. Um, and Christopher Chance is just standing back, right? Like he doesn't get involved. Not only is he dying, but he doesn't really have any superpowers, but he notices something about the interaction between Blue Beetle and Ice as they're teaming up, and we don't find out what it is until the end when he he basically, as he's narrating the story, he mentions to us that the whole time, all throughout the entire day, Ice has been holding back, right, like she literally is a goddess in terms of her power level, um, and she's holding back because it means so much to Ted to be a part of it, right? Like. Most likely, ICE could show up at every one of these emergencies and solve the problem in, in a matter of minutes, if not seconds. Um, but she holds back, and that says something really about who ICE is, um, which I find interesting. And then it appears as though Christopher Chance and ICE are going to be intimate, which, hey, man, go for it, Christopher Chance. You only have a couple of days left, and you know she's a beautiful woman, so, so why not? Uh, but really what sells this book, and Tom King himself has talked about this, you know, he's like, You buy this book because of what Greg Smallwood is doing, and the story's kind of incidental. And it's hard to argue with that because the art is just gorgeous. There's a there's a scene at the end where Christopher Chance goes back to his hotel room before him and Ice are about to to have some personal time and he opens the door and there she is standing there in in this kind of short bathrobe. And I love the use of shadow that uh, that Christopher or that uh, Greg Smallwood gives us. In there uh it's just again it's a little thing and uh just stunningly gorgeous artwork like it's such a charming book uh and i i would be shocked i would be absolutely shocked if this book doesn't win eisner's um it's that good it's yeah. absolutely fantastic exactly. so yeah what's your thoughts rocky uh
1: i i i absolutely love this i i can't believe more people are not talking about this comic Here, here's you know, it's interesting hearing your review uh, because my review, I, I, my focus when I think of this comic is different than yours, and I, I think you'll agree with me, everything I'm about to say, but it's, it's interesting that your focus was different. But I see this as uh, Christopher Chance, Christopher Chance is a man who's dying, but he's falling in love with Ice, and he's falling in love with a woman, Ice, who's very powerful, and she might just be the one who's guilty of potentially killing him. She hasn't been ruled out as a suspect yet. That's what I find fascinating about this love affair between Ice and Christopher Chance. And what's so beautiful about this is that, you know, there's a lot of goddamn dialogue in this issue. Blue Beetle won't (laughs) shut the F F up. He's talking and yapping. Now, most of the time, we as a reviewer, we'd criticize that. But it's very intentionally done by Tom King here. And it's obvious because it's Blue Beetle. Blue Beetle never shots up. He's <laughs> always talking. And Christopher Chance even says at the end of this thing, finally there's silence. Because Blue Beetle yeah. finally gets drunk and passes out. He finally gets silence at the end, which allows Christopher Chance to go up. but uh, And ultimately have an intimate moment, intimate moments with uh, Ice. But moments here like of dialogue where Tom King is just masterfully captures it. There's a moment of weakness where Christopher chance looks at ice and says, sometimes when I look at how beautiful you are, I can't breathe. And she just stares at him when he says that, and she's taken aback. He takes her breath away with those words because he, he knows he's dying. He's not good enough for her, but she's so beautiful. He takes his breath. He's telling her that you take my breath away, but He's man enough to know that he's not he's not putting himself out there. he's not putting himself out to her, and he references he talks about it, Christopher Chance in the dialogue. he talks about his friend who who's told him that the trick to winning every fight is never wanting to win, and this same friend that told him that died in his arms and because you know and the idea that wanting something is admitting you don't have it. so his friend died in his arms because all he wanted to do was to live. His friend just wanted to live, but because he wanted that, he couldn't. And it's these types of metaphors in the dialogue that Tom King is a, ma- is a master at. And when they hit, they hit so well. And it's funny that critics of Tom King will look at stuff i just talked about and say, well, that's just Tom, that's a Tom Kingism, and that's just all BS. No, this absolutely works for me. It nails it. This nails the love affair. This is a, this is a 1960s love affair between a beautiful woman and a man who is dying. He's falling in love. And with Ice, who's um, making it, you know, you know, she might actually be the person who's killed him for all he knows. And, um, uh, uh, you know, at one point, Christopher Chance says to Ice, you know, you know, you know, that he was watching her. And she says, you watched huh? yet somehow you're still breathing. There's this there's this little dalliance between them this This sort of love of words and this 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 verbal foreplay that plays out throughout it 's been playing out a number of issues, and it finally culminates with the two of them making love at the end of this issue. This is beautiful and what what highlights it is that i 'm so pissed off by Blue Beetle in the middle of this because he won 't shut the hell up so that they can make out i, I you know and it pisses me off she's she 's going up to her bed to her hotel room. To change into something more comfortable, he's forced to sit there with a drunk Blue Beetle yapping away. Who finally passes out, the bastard, so we can finally get some alone time with with between Christopher Chance and Ice. This was a beautifully structured and written comic book, entertaining as hell, and it hit all the high notes. I hated Blue Beetle in it in all the right in all the right ways. It was over exposition in all the right ways because it got me to be annoyed at Blue Beetle. It had love. It had it had the verbal foreplay. It ended with a lovemaking session between Christopher Chance and a beautiful woman, and all topped up with Greg Smallwood. This story would not have worked without Greg Smallwood's art. This was a masterpiece of an issue. I loved it.
0: Yeah, it was it was fantastic. The only thing that I'll, I'll sort of disagree, and it's it's a nitpick on on what you said, is you know a story of Christopher Chance and Ice falling in love. I, maybe for ice that's true maybe ice is discovering more about christopher chance and in love. my argument would be that christopher chance fell in love with ice like it was love at first sight like <laughs> oh, he Lord. loved her from the from the <laughs> moment that they he, 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 yeah so but but you know it's i mean we're talking semantics it's yeah it's 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 absolutely fan, fantastic it, and you're right uh you're right to, to to take it in that direction i talked more about the, the actual story beats but ultimately the backbone of the story yeah there's the mystery but yeah, this is a, this is a love story. This is a romance story. So fantastic. And yeah, you're right. I mean, that Greg Smallwood art, like I said, I, I could, I would like, if somebody told me, okay, you can buy this book, but you can't read it. You can only, you don't get to know what the story is. You can just look at the art. I still would buy it. That's how good the art is. It's fantastic. (laughs) Uh, all right. We're up to the last book. It's Wonder Girl number seven. And it's the last book in more ways than one, because it's the final issue of, uh, of Wonder Girl. Uh, We have Joelle Jones, who's the writer, Homecoming Part 7, Layla Del Duca as the artist who does something here that a lot of the artists have been doing on this book, whether it's Adriana Mello or anybody else who's filled in. She's very, in in a very, uh, you can think good or bad way, but in a very competent way, she's channeling Joelle Jones. It very much looks like a Joelle Jones style of, of art, which is what Adriana Mello did and other artists who've come on the book. So at least when you, this will, I imagine it'll be, uh, even though there's seven issues, it'll be collected in one trade as opposed to multiple. Um, at least there will be a somewhat of a consistency of art. Uh, Jordi Belair handles the colors, Pat Brosso on letters. Um, man, between the delays and, and some issues with structure and narrative, Wonder Girl's been a challenge. How do you think it all came out in the end, Rocky?
1: Uh terrible. Uh, and I say that uh, again with uh, I just can't think of a more diplomatic word than than terrible. I I just I I'm I'm so do I understand the gist of the narrative? Yes. And what's so tragic about this is and I suppose the saving grace of the narrative is that I understand the gist of what is trying to be said here. I mean, I get it. Uh, and that's what makes it all the more disappointing because this was a very one-dimensional story. This wasn't particularly well thought through. This was, it, it just wasn't. This was, there There was nothing particularly sophisticated about this plot. There's still most of the stuff that could be interesting, we don't know. We know that Yara Flor is a member of this Brazilian tribe called the Esquisita. Uh, we don't, we still don't know why uh, Yara Flora is special. We don't know why she's special. We don't know why Hera gives a shit about her. We don't know why Hera manipulated her and sent her son Eros or uh, the, 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 the son of Zeus Eros manipulated her, shot her with the arrow to make her fall in love with him. And then he fell in love with her, even though he, even though Yar knew she was hit with the arrow, she knew she was being manipulated. She voluntarily went to Olympus. She voluntarily allowed herself to be trained by Hera and then out of the blue decided to rebel against Hera. That was never really explained why, um, uh, I thought Yara has been portrayed as, a, uh, frankly, as an idiot. She displays no wisdom. Whatever, whoever her god God is in, in control of wisdom seems uh, seems to be lacking in intelligence. Uh, but in any event, Yara Yara is trying to escape Olympus while the Escazita tribe are trying to. They're on the out. They're on the outskirts of Olympus, trying to break into Olympus to break out Yara Flora. The Esquizita tribe fighting alongside the Esquisitor tribe are Artemis, Donna Troy, and Cassie Sandsmark, the original Wonder Girl. Uh, or I guess that would be Donna Troy, but Sassy Sandsmark, the second Wonder Girl. Yara Four, I guess, would be the third Wonder Girl, I guess, if you're keeping score. And so, yeah, uh, meanwhile, we got Femos and Nemos and, and Eros, the sons of, of Ares, sort of fighting fighting Yara Um uh, And I'm not really sure why. Again, I don't know why they want to kill Yara. This has not been explained. (laughs) This this is a... a,
0: Because uh, Zeus doesn't like her for some reason.
1: Well, I think it's Hera. But uh, oddly enough, oddly enough, I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant here again. (laughs) Zeus shows up and Zeus says something very interesting that I'm surprised doesn't piss off some feminists here. And maybe it will. Zeus shows up out of the blue and says... That is enough, Hera. You have interfered too much in these matters. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm sorry, Zeus. This is the first (laughs) I've even heard of Zeus being in the story. It was Hera who's been at the beginning of this. It was Hera that's been doing all these machinations, not Zeus. Why is Zeus telling Hera you've interfered too much in these matters? Zeus hasn't interfered until now. We haven't even seen Zeus. So where the hell is he coming from? And he shows up with a lightning bolt. What's he going to do? And then to make it even worse... And this is a real stain on this narrative. It's Cassie Sandsmark who talks Zeus into standing down and saying, please give Yara the chance that you gave me. And I was also an outcast and half, a half-breed. I was a half-god, half. So it robs Yara Flora of any agency in her own comic book to save the day. It's Cassie Sandsmark that does it. Everyone else wins the day. What the hell would Yara Fleur have done? Yara Fleur didn't win shit this issue. I mean, she was, I mean, it was, it was, uh, Eros had to actually voluntarily dissipate the power of the, the arrow, which I didn't even know he could do. <laughs> he dissipated the power of the arrow, removed his influence over Yara, which I didn't, you know, I guess I didn't even know he could do that. So that's that, that's forced. So, and then, and then thank God. Thank God for Donna Troy, Cassie Sandsmark, Artemis, and the Esquisita tribe showing up because Yara Flora sure didn't didn't impress anyone. Um, This whole thing has been a a massive disappointment to me. I've, you know, I mean, I understand that Yara Flora is supposed to be young, impulsive, and I expect her to be flawed. What I didn't expect her to be was stupid. And she comes across in my mind as stupid. And she didn't just make the mistake where she, she knew she was being manipulated. She was shot with the air. She knew that she was, I, I thought she knew all this. It was certainly obvious to the reader. Uh, and then even her affair with the stage five clinger, Zhao, the bus driver, who she met for five minutes and suddenly had a love affair with. I mean, come on. There was so much about this that feels forced. I've heard rumors on the grapevine that maybe Joelle Jones had a lot of editorial interference or maybe she wasn't getting a lot of editorial guidance. I've heard rumors of that. Frankly, I believe it. I, I almost hope that's the case, so to, at least to justify one of the most convoluted narratives that I've read. I These seven issues, I completely see why they canceled it at issue seven, even though they had issue eight already completed. Uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I think the art's terrible. I don't like the art. Uh, Joelle Jones art's better than this. I think the art is really bad. I think, uh, Yara Flora has been robbed of her agencies. She's been robbed of winning the day at the end of this. This is a narrative mess. This is going to continue apparently in trial of the Amazons. Do we really want Yara Flora to play a significant role in trial of the Amazons when she's an embarrassment in her own comic? Uh, that's how I see this. She deserves so much better than this. Uh, I I can't believe that these issues pass muster. I I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Wonder Woman fan. I want the Amazons to thrive, but when I, when I read this, I am stunned, stunned at just how short-sighted this is. And, and even the, uh, even how Hera, how Zeus shows up and his arrogance and the male arrogance, and the, uh, it's, it's the oddest thing. It's the most disturbing thing. And in an attempt to make all these women be empowered, I honestly, I, I think Artemis is an idiot. Like, I mean, genuinely stupid. Cassie Sandsmark, stupid. The conversations, the dialogue between the two of them in early issues, why they let Yara Flora get away with what they were getting away with. They were sent on a mission. They defied the charges that were given to them by by their respective queens in the different Amazonian tribes. Nothing about this makes sense. Hera, Hera gets no comeuppance. We still don't even know what Hera's idea, what Hera's endgame is. What was the point of this? I mean, I, I get so frustrated at this that, I, I mean, I honestly think you got to work at being this... I, I'm just I I I'm at wit's end. I mean I, there. <clears throat> I'm just gonna stop talking now. I'm sorry I'm rambling, but uh, t- t- am I am I being too harsh?
0: Maybe a little, <laughs> but not but not but not much. Um, I, yeah, I, it's. I mean, what can you say positive? I mean, I, I'm struggling here. I was confused by the narrative throughout. You know, I wasn't a big fan of of Yara Flora like you were in in the future state issues but the first issue of this i thought had some really intriguing ideas from joelle jones i know joelle jones is a talented creator i know she knows how to tell a good story but this was this was confusing the entire time yeah. it never made sense it felt like big chunks of the story were missing um i just had a hard time following it and i, I thought well maybe it's me um i just i don't i don't understand i don't i really don't understand um i, I Again, like I, I hadn't heard the rumors, but not that I went around asking uh, about editorial interference, but yeah, this certainly seems like a case of, okay, you know, wh- one month they're going to go in this direction, another month they're going to go in that direction. It was it was delayed probably with some, you know, art delays and and um, and it lost some of its mo- momentum because of the delays, paper shortage, all that kind of thing. So this is a book where it felt like even the people that were writing it didn't know what the story was, you know, and, and it, they kept, it kept shifting in direction It never found, fa- it never found its footing, which is a shame because I th- like if you, when I heard Joel Jones is going to be writing Yara Floor, I was like, okay, that's a great, that's a great choice for a person to, to flesh out who Yara Floor is yeah. and to, to give us an understanding. Uh, and again, the first issue had some intriguing ideas, but then we got thrown into this convoluted storyline with Amazons and, and Yara Floor destined to destroy the the tribes and whatever. And it's like, you never made me care about Yaraflora in the first place. Exactly. So I, I was always struggling to, to really be invested in the story. And then on top of that, it was just so convoluted. So, yeah. I, well, it, even that,
1: even the relationship between Yaraflora and her mother. Who her mother shows up here in a dream sequence to sort of inspire her to overcome the influence of Eros. And it's, the moment is completely lost because we know nothing about, we know so little about her mother other than through a terribly artistically rendered uh, flashback that was all colored in green. I mean, it was just, I mean, we, we got no, I mean, we we got, we, this is seven issues in and we don't know almost nothing about her relationship with her mother. And and here Yara is crying in this issue about, oh, I lost my heritage, I lost my mother, I lost my my family, I lost my tribe, I lost my, really? You did? I never got that impression. I thought you were more interested in getting laid by Eros and Zhao, the stage five <laughs> clinger, the bus driver, than than, than the actual storyline. Like I'm serious. Like the the priorities and the structure and, and the and the scenes that Joel Jones chose to focus on in the telling of this story completely missed the mark. I, I'm sorry to say, in in my opinion.
0: <laughs> yeah, again, I, I mean, you never gave me a reason to care about her. You never like so yeah, unfortunately it's a, it's a miss. Hopefully somebody else can come along and and make us care about Yard Floor cuz I even after seven issues I I still don't care. And I'll we'll go back to what I was saying earlier, like right? a lot of the the same narrative issues and structural issues that Teen Titans Academy has, th- this has, right? Mm. And then we talked about the fact that we're only four issues into Task Force Z and we feel like we know so much. And and granted, um you know, Jason Todd is a known uh, Red Hood is a known quantity as opposed to Yara Floor is not, but, but still, you know, seven issues. I don't, I, I know nothing. I, you know, if somebody asked me who's, who's Yara Floor, I would say, well, she's a Brazilian version of Wonder Girl, but I, beyond that, I like, what's her personality like? What, what's her level of intelligence? Like, I have no idea. Like you calling her stupid. I wouldn't go so far as to say that. <laughs> only because I don't feel like she was given anything to work with. You know, I was talking about Henry Cavill earlier. I think he has the potential to be a good Superman, but unfortunately I don't think he's gotten good material to work with. I feel the same way about about Yara (laughs) Floor here. She's not given any good good material to work with, unfortunately. Um, And the other thing, and I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up as well. The thing that bothered me most about this particular issue, like everything I'm talking about that's bothered me is about this series as a whole. But if if I want to focus specifically on this, on this issue yes it has its own problems um at least it gave somewhat of an ending and they did the best they could with you know what they had uh but the thing that actually bugged me and you mentioned it was cassie sandsmark coming in to save the day yeah so you know taking away Yaraflor's agency in her own book but not only that right like part of the reason yariflor was so interesting to me is we were getting a brazilian wonder woman right like a latin wonder woman she was maybe gonna get her own TV show. I'm yeah. sorry to see that deal fall apart and what have you. But like bad enough for Yara Flora to be rescued in her own book by somebody else, but it's the white it's the little white princess girl yeah. that comes and saves the day wow. for the minority Latin. I can't I, I, I say is that what as,
1: surprises me. It surprises yeah. me. We got the male we got the male god coming in being an ass. And then saved by like I'm surprised like I mean again I'm not I'm not trying to be political when I say this but I'm astonished at that yeah. that that they that edit, that this past editorial because
0: it's such it an bothered, easy fix it bothered me and I here here I'm straight like to look at me you would think oh that's a straight white guy now I'm half I'm half Hispanic I know I don't look it but it even offends me you know and I know I'm I'm pretty liberal and I, I very much lean to the left and and whatever that's just you know my beliefs, but like it even bothered me. I can only imagine somebody who's who's been a fan of of Yara Flord despite the flaws in the series, because she is, you know, a, a Latin Wonder Woman, and you know, maybe they're, uh, you know, that's their heritage, and they've looked to to Yara Flord to, to, you know, be somebody that inspires them, somebody they can identify with, and they're going to pick this up and read it and see this little blonde haired, blue eyed white princess save the day. Like if that was me, I'd be like. Are you effing kidding me? Yeah. Get the hell out of here with that. That's yeah, it, it's problematic. It's problematic at best, but uh, it's over. Uh, you know, we've talked about on our our DC comic talk about maybe a little few too many DC books on the stands these days. So uh, at, at least we have one less now. Um, but it's it's disappointing because I it feels like potential wasted, and I still feel like Yara Floor does have. Potential to be an interesting character, but yeah this the series unfortunately didn 't didn 't do it for me so uh, anyway, there are a few um, collected editions out today we we did talk about all the individual issues, uh, but we also have the all star Superman deluxe edition, which collects what had been my favorite Grant Morrison story of all time um, that may have changed recently with some Morrison stuff that I've read. Uh, including Klaus. But anyway, it's a great story. Uh, all Star Superman Deluxe Edition collects all 12 issues. There's also The Flash by Jeff Johns, Omnibus Volume 3 hardcover. And then there's a Gen 13 starting over Deluxe Edition hardcover that's out today as well. So that's all the DC comics. Uh, don't forget about our Spawn Daily a podcast that, that we're doing. Hopefully, Rocky's going to be able to come back on soon. Uh, We're basically reading every issue of the original Spawn series and releasing one uh, episode a day, talking about one issue. Uh, I also have, as I said, the interview with uh, with Christopher Priest that I just did. I did an interview with the creative writers for Supermassive, which is a big Image Comics Radiant Black crossover with a couple of new heroes that's coming on February 16th. Monday, January 24th, was FOC, final order cutoff. So if you didn't order it, better get to your comic shop early on February 16th. Because remember, there's no there's no reprints right now. There's no second printings, third printings, whatever with image. So I expect that one to sell out. Um, also, our Jeremy Adams interview that we've mentioned several times is coming up this Thursday. Uh, also today, as this comes out on uh, Tuesday the 25th, I do have an interview with DeVarian Johnson. He's a writer that uh, wrote a Mr. Miracle story. It's the Scott free Mr. Miracle, but as a person of color, which is really interesting, way back in his days in Apocalypse when he was going to the Granny Goodness School. The Granny Goodness School in the graphic novel is portrayed as sort of this high school. Barda's there. It's a really, really great story with some great art. So Varian and I talked about that. That's hitting comic shops today as well. It's in that YA line. So uh, a lot of good content, a lot of good stuff. Uh, coming out from uh, the comic source along with uh, Comic Boom. Any any uh, recent episodes or stuff? I know you've been um, kind of under the gun and not able to do things because of the, your your daughter's health and whatnot. But anything you want to plug or uh, uh, mention that you've had recently or coming up?
1: Well, uh, sure. I, I did. I did manage to squeeze in a review of uh, Mark Miller's uh, King of Spy, uh, King of Spies issue two. It's it's a lot of fun man. If you like James if you like an older James Bond who's dying from cancer and he wants to take out some scumbags that he wasn't allowed to touch as a British secret service. Now he's retired and he's dying of he's dying from a brain tumor of some kind and he wants to take out the trash. It's a great series, typical Mark Millar fashion. I reviewed issue 2. It's a lot of fun. Check it out and uh yeah, beyond that I you know, I'm, I'm still working on my schedule, but I hope to join you on some spawn issues coming up and uh, maybe a couple other uh, surprises and check out the Jeremy yeah, Adams ever... interview, the Jeremy Adams interview on Thursday that I did with you. Thank you for letting me join you on that. I had a lot of fun. He's a great guy. Yeah. Great creator.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely a passionate creator. And, uh, and also we have our comic source awards and end of year uh, awards that are coming up um, hopefully right. before the end of January, but it's a big, big, massive undertaking uh, every year. Got to go back through yeah. the things we read and, and pick the winner so that's coming okay. as well everybody i know i had a couple people reach out to me on social media asking about it yep we're, we're still going to do it don't worry it's coming so uh, don't forget if you're listening to us audio only head over to youtube subscribe to the comic boom youtube channel it's comic space boom exclamation point ring the notification bell so you know when rocky has new content uh whether it's a collaboration with a comic source or on his own and be sure you like this video and comment and let us know your thoughts on this plethora of books that came out today from dc Uh, conversely if you check us out on youtube so you can see the awesome art in all these comics and you're not subscribed to the comic source you really appreciate you guys subscribing so you don't miss out on any of the audio only content so go to your favorite podcasting platform whether it's google stitcher um itunes whatever it is or go to your your podcasting app on your smart device and just do a search for the comic source and subscribe so you get those new episodes that come out every day downloaded to your device so that's gonna do it for this episode everybody we really appreciate the support as always and we'll talk to you next time see you later you can find the comic source podcast on spotify apple podcast stitcher google play or whichever podcasting app you prefer please tell all your friends about us subscribe and rate us the ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners especially five star reviews on apple